Hey, it's Gary and Shannon. You're about to embark on yet another great adventure with the Gary and Shannon Show. A reminder, we want you to make sure that you look at the iHeart app and hit the follow button on the Gary and Shannon Show podcast so that you can get updates on what's going on with our podcast. Don't forget to share it as well. Get it? It's adventure music. Also, share it on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you have that opportunity, and tell a friend about what you're listening to when you listen to The Gary and Shannon Show. I've tried to be fair to you creatures. <laughs> now my patience has reached its end. Tell me, or I'll... No, not my gumdrop buttons. All right, then. Who's hiding them? Okay, I'll tell you. Do you know... Gary. The Muffin Man? Gary Hoffman. Yes. Shannon. Tell me if you've seen her. She always bring the racket like Venus and Serena. Shannon Farron. This is about to get weird. Gary and Shannon. Let's begin this new chapter together. And let's start the work right now. really hard time with this breathless L.A. Times story. <laughs> it, it is just, it, it is, uh, it's mind-boggling that this was printed. This is, uh, this one's just out. It's about the, uh, the gang member uh, who killed Officer Keith Boyer. Uh, in Whittier. Right. Not the gang member that killed Gil Vega or Leslie Zarebny in, in Palm Desert that was also uh, just out of prison, I think, for assault with a deadly weapon. This was another gang member that was let out because of AB 109. It's just it's just so frustrating when they keep pointing to the Supreme Court saying, well, they said that we can only have X number of inmates in prison. OK, but read the Supreme Court decision further and it says if the capacity cannot be increased through new construction. The idea that that the prisons are overcrowded, and so let's just let these guys out, is insane thinking to me. And that's that's just part of it. I mean, when you get into the policies of of, uh, repeat drug offenders who also have violent crimes attached to their record, that they're not somehow then flagged for whether it's court-appointed, court-monitored drug treatment programs or just a longer stint in jail where they don't have access to drugs. Can we do something, please? And now the L.A. Times that loves AB 109, wants to make babies with AB 109. Now the L.A. Times is blaming law enforcement for the fact that this gang member was out and able to kill. You know, you know the, the one thing that, that killed me in all of this was they used that guy's own words they always just want to lock us up and they credit that to michael mejia explaining to investigators his dissatisfaction under ab 109 i'm sorry i am sorry that ab 109 has inconvenienced you to the point that when you do bad things you go to a place called jail hopefully a place called prison it's disgusting and embarrassing that this was printed in the la times at the bottom of this hour we're actually going to uh, get into this story quite a bit because there is a whole lot that goes into the county's decision. They they did their own investigation into, gosh, did AB 109 have anything to do with a bad guy being out on the street and shooting police officers? Gosh, we should look into that. We're also, in the 11 o'clock hour, going to be joined by Justin Warsham, uh, talk, the host of the Dad podcast, talking about the benefits of summer camp. Everybody's got some 
some good ideas and re- good memories, hopefully, of, of what they did at summer camp. Mark Saltzman's going to join us. We're going to get into tech talk in we're the gonna, 1 o'clock hour. We're also going to have Golden State Killer news, some more charges probably filed in another county today. And also, one of the investigators that has put in some recent investigative work on the Zodiac Killer case. We're going to be talking to him as well. It's going to be a big show. But we start with the made-for-television re- return <laughs> yeah. of the Korean-Americans that the the administration was able to arrange the release of. Now, listen, it was just before midnight hour time that this plane made its approach to the runway at uh, Joint Base Andrews overnight. And President Trump was there. First Lady Melania was there. The vice president was there, all of them, to welcome home Kim Dong-chul, Tony Kim, and Kim Hak-sung, uh, these three guys who had been held in North Korea on just absolute bogus charges. They looked, by the way, fantastic. Uh, I mean, in terms, I'm sure they had a pretty good couple of meals on their plane. It was uh, better than traveling first class. Uh, but they looked fantastic. But are, are you just thinking they looked fantastic through the lens of auto warm beer? Yes, but my assumption would have been that these three guys were going to have uh, undergone months and months of malnutrition. Well, Trump said that North Korea's Kim Jong-un was excellent to these three people, these three incredible people. But Mike Pence kind of had a different story during an ABC interview, that they uh, endured some harsh conditions, that when they stopped in Anchorage to refuel one of the detainees asked to go outside the plane because he hadn't seen daylight in a very long time. Yeah, yeah, that that that's the kind of thing I was thinking of, that they have been subjected to some of the worst uh, prison conditions, not necessarily torture, but the worst prison conditions that you can imagine because they were being held just for political purposes. And there's, I mean... There's no other reason that these guys were picked up. They could trump up charges about that they were enemies to the state of North Korea for whatever. Are you talking about two professors who are working at a university that's paid for entirely by Christian charities in Pyongyang? Are they bad guys or are they trying to help the people of North Korea? This is a, but this is a huge, huge step coming on the uh, or I should say coming before the announcement that the president also made today that he is going to sit down with Kim Jong-un in Singapore on June 12th. Hey, that's Bill Handel Day. It is Bill Handel Day. Did you, how did you know that? Uh, Because you, you told me about an hour ago. Oh, yes. June 12th is Bill Handel Day, specifically in Hollywood, but it is Bill Handel Day. Uh, that's when he does got he know that uh, that no. does Bill Handel know nope. that it's Bill Handel Day on June 12th? No, because this seems like something that he'd get excited about. The I, fact that Trump and Un are going to meet on his special day. I, I I don't let's remind him every time we see him between now and then. But I don't even think I'm working that day. I think I have vacation that day. So it's going to be up to you to remind him that June 12th okay. is Bill Handel. I'll take care of that. Uh, but that is a big deal. There are questions about now. I mean, now we know a, a place, uh, a date. There are going to be a whole lot of specifics that still have to be worked out, including how much literal face-to-face time Trump and Kim get together. How Are they going to be meeting in private, just the two of them, granted with some translators? Uh, are they going to be uh, flanked on either side by dozens of their own cabinet members or however, you know, State Department workers, et cetera? And how much of what they say is going to be public? How much of it will we know about? 
in terms of their interaction with each other? Well, today, President Trump tweeted that the five most wanted ISIS leaders had just been captured. Uh, That is a little bit of not really the situation because we had already heard that news uh, from Brian Suits. Here's the thing. Earlier in the week. It may have been breaking news to Donald Trump. That's true. Uh, We'll actually talk about that and this latest in what appears to be sort of the proxy war that's heating up between Iran and Israel that's much less proxy-ish than it was even a couple of days ago. Also, your chance at $1,000, it's all coming up next. Gary and Shannon will continue. Gary and Shannon, it's Thursday. It's May 10th. Somebody's birthday today. I gotta find this out. Go on the go on the Facebook. The Facebook will tell you whose birthday it is. No, it's my brother-in-law. There you go. Think about it. Got it. Do you think he'd like a thousand dollars? Maybe it's someone's anniversary. Thousand dollars make it all go away. Your shot at one thousand dollars now. Text the keyword bills to 200, 200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's bills to 200, 200. Got to answer that phone because the winners will be notified by a phone call. If you don't answer, though, then you're technically not even a winner. Um, so let's not do that. Israel has launched what looks like one of the heaviest barrages against Iranian targets in Syria since the civil war began there in 2011. Really the most intensive Israeli action we've seen in Syria uh, since the civil war broke out there, Brian Suits is all-knowing when it comes to everything and joins us now. Yeah, I'm calling you about the $1,000. <laughs> is, it, is it safe to say that this is the most direct confrontation between Israel and Iran that we've seen? Um, so far, this is also the largest uh, Israeli cross-border airstrike in about 25 years. This was a massive airstrike last night. They killed approximately 23 Iranians, and this is on the heels of killing eight, nine Iranians a month ago. The, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, their special force called the Quds Force, is really furious because they're busy redeploying Hezbollah. Uh, and the, the Israelis are setting up what, what uh, clearly is going to be a ground invasion later on today. They're going to go into Syria? Yep. They're moving right now. So this sounds like they're on the brink of a full-scale war, Iran and uh, Israel. Well, no, no. This is what you know. Netanyahu on May 9th, uh, Netanyahu was in Moscow meeting with Putin for 11 hours, and uh, in between commemorating the end of World War II, and he clearly said to Putin, "He will not tolerate the Quds Force shooting ballistic missiles into Israel, and we assume you won't either. You're you're there to keep Assad in power. They're not helping." We, we have to defend ourselves, and, and Putin probably nodded and said very well. Um, but you, and Putin said, you understand, they get to shoot back if they want, right? And so the, the Netanyahu decided there's no more this direct fire of Iranians shooting ballistic missiles into Israel. The, the rockets that the Iranians fired yesterday that set this whole thing off, they didn't even reach Israel. They, they landed in Syria. And so the, the Israelis had moved uh, an armor brigade, including calling up reserves, because they have to. Uh, a couple, about three days ago, they put tanks in place on the Golan Heights. The U.N., uh, there's a U.N. observer force on the Golan Heights. It's been there since 1974 called called UNDOT, United Nations Disengagement, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, they were told several hours ago to pack their ass and, and get out. So they're getting out of the way. Uh, and the Israelis have a downhill drive. And what they want to do is set up a buffer zone physically in Syria. And they're going to tell Assad, you know, it's nothing personal. This is business. But you're allowing these clowns to bring us into your war. And guess what? You got your wish. Uh, is there a chance that Iran launches uh, airstrikes from Iran towards Israel? Uh, they they would be intercepted by the American and NATO aircraft, and we we probably have told the Iraqis, and the Iraqis agree. You don't want to play that game. You don't want to <clears throat> don't want to let the Iranians use your airspace to to strike Israel. Uh, maybe striking Israeli targets or Israeli military in Syria, but. It's highly unlikely because the Iranian Air Force is basically just for parades and flybys. Hey, so what about the uh, the, the tweet that Trump put out today about uh, the five most wanted ISIS leaders? This was uh, news that you had, I guess, before the president did. <laughs> I, I don't quite. Uh, he might have been just brief today or something on it, but this is something that. Back in April, the Iraqi Air Force hit several high-value ISIS targets in Syria, and the targeting was amazingly precise. And it was really, really clear that they were getting firsthand knowledge, probably from captured ISIS guys. And then the story got out that they captured a high-ranking ISIS guy in Mosul, uh, and that um, he didn't have time to warn the other ISIS guys that he was captured. And so they continued messaging each other like they do, on the, uh, the Telegram app, um, and they texted his, his phone, and the Iraqis set a trap. And they said, hey, um, hey, buddy, why don't you, hey, let's all have a, a kahuna meeting, a big kahuna meeting here in back. It'll be a pool party and uh, the whole thing. So these are the first four idiots who showed up, and they were, they were captured. This is back in April. They were captured, and I'm sure the Iraqis follow absolutely every part of the Geneva Conventions and extracting information from them. <laughs> but right after these guys were captured was when the Iraqi Air Force and the U.S. Air Force started hitting these very valuable ISIS targets. So I thought this was sort of general knowledge. The Iraqis released this yesterday. Um, Trump must have just seen it today because the minute he tweeted it out, you know, everyone's acting like this is breaking news. And by the way, these are not these are high ranking guys, but they're not the most wanted guys out of ISIS. They're in the top twenty, but they're not the top five. Uh, tonight, you have uh, another one of the dark secret place quiz, uh, the first ever quiz show, though, right? Yes. Um, if you know your war movies and your general pew pew, then uh, go go to the Twitter feed or the Facebook page, Dark Secret Place uh, trivia contest of the Arcadia Dave and Buster's. $25 per team, people per team. You have to have a really clever name for your team, but it'll be uh, it'll it'll be a war movie and and uh, a trivia night at Dave and Buster's. Thanks, man. Where did he go? I don't know. I think he, he went back to the dark secret place. <laughs> no, sounds... I'm still. Oh, okay. okay. That sounds like fun <laughs> trivia like, night. Like put me oh, there it is. All right. <laughs> Uh, and again, you can find it at Dark Secret Place on Facebook, The Dark Secret Place. Uh, you can find it on Twitter as well, the information about the uh, the Dark Secret Place live show tonight at the Arcadia Dave & Buster. Coming up next, be ready to lose your mind because the L.A. Times and something called the Marshall Project, I've got to believe this is just one of those projects that wants to let everybody out of prisons, um, has put together this breathless 
oh, I don't know, eight-page article in the L.A. Times about the murder of Whittier police officer Keith Boyer and how it wasn't the fault of the gang member and the failed system that killed him, uh, but the, the fault of law enforcement. Oh, okay. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Gary and Shannon will continue in just a moment. Also, don't forget, you have an opportunity to enjoy our company at the beautiful OUE Sky Space coming up on Monday, October 1st. All of it to uh, benefit the Red Cross Get Prepared California. Uh, the tickets are limited, but you get to hang out for a nice little cocktail party. They have unlimited sky slide rides, etc. Again, Monday, October 1st. For all the details, go to KFIAM640.com and use the keyword mixer. Gary and Shannon, KFIAM640. So give me the green light. Let's go. Because I'm ready to go. Gary and Shannon. Still bubbling over with anger over the L.A. Times and their decision to print this piece of crap article. Um, you know, I'm just going like to say something before we start down this road. Okay. We hear about the high-profile murders. We hear about the officers who are killed in the line of duty, like Keith Boyer, like Gil Vega, Leslie Zarebny. We do not hear about the number of crimes, murders, assaults that don't rise to the level of getting printed in the news. So this isn't just officers who who are losing their lives to to these people that we continually let out of California prisons. Um, This is affecting everybody's community. And the L.A. Times has taken it upon itself to not blame AB 109, letting people out of the prisons, reducing their crimes, putting them back into your neighborhoods. They've decided not to blame that because that is their little child. That is their little baby, AB 109. We've got to protect, protect, protect against anything that could happen in November. But they are blaming now law enforcement for these officers who have lost their lives. It's a strange uh, sort of mental gymnastics that takes place in this article, uh, even though it's based on this report from the county. Now, uh, joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Michelle Hannessy. She is the uh, president of the Association of Deputy DAs, and she's been on our show before to talk about issues just like this. Michelle, I- I'm sure you've read through this. I mean, you were quoted in this article uh, uh, yourself. W- what's your reaction to this? You know what? I I dove in being ready to hate the article and disagree with what they said. But in truth, if you really read it carefully, it is actually not unfair. And what they document here is that the system failed, but they don't say what is the conclusion, which is this is the system created by, by AB 109. Right. And all they said is they concluded it's a complex chain of events. Well, congratulations for concluding what everyone else knew. It's a complex problem that requires a complicated solution. Yeah, all the things that they pointed out are results of AB 109, uh, eventual results of it, really. That is correct. What it documents is the lack of adequate supervision under the system created by AB 109, where probation isn't telling the DA what's going on, and they aren't telling what the courts what's going on with these people they're supervising. And this is what the Reducing Crime and Keeping California Safe Act will fix by requiring a person on a third violation to be returned to the court for a full hearing. 
There was a, a series of problems with this guy specifically, the suspect in the uh, in the death of uh, Officer Boyer, where he had not only violent offenses, but he also had a series of drug offenses as well. Is there a way to connect those two and say someone who has repeated drug violations and violence in their history that they should be um, scrutinized, they should be put into drug treatment programs that are monitored by the courts? Is there any way to connect those? You know, there are drug users who never do worse crimes. There are violent criminals who commit violent crimes and never do drugs. But a lot of criminals just do everything. They're not specialists. You can be a murderer and also commit drug offenses, Why it's really, which is why it's really important to reinstate DNA collection for low-level offenses, because that's the DNA that solves cases like the Golden State Killer. Um, studies by the California Department of Justice have shown that. Um, but, you know, in this article, they document all of his violations, and they said they had him on a higher – they had him tagged as a high-risk level um, person of supervision. So they were supposed to be supervising him more, but they're limited to the system created by AB 109. Right. So what happened with AB 109 and and, and the, the package of laws was that the state shifted the responsibility to the county for supervising prisoners like this monster. And the county was just – overwhelmed is that right oh yeah absolutely if you want to see how how overwhelmed they are go to the la county probation department's website and look at their most wanted list and it's this endless list page after page of violent offenders who are released under ab 109 to county probation who have absconded and disappeared into our communities oh that's lovely um can you I know you mentioned the uh, the piece of legislation that that will face voters in November. Can you talk again about how that will fix uh, the damage that's been done uh, and to what extent could it fix it? Absolutely. No, it's aimed exactly at these, these issues. It's called the Reducing Crime and Keeping California Safe Act. Um, you can find out a lot about it. KeepCalSafe.org. KeepCalSafe.org. And it does a couple of things. And one of the key things it would do is it would require offenders like Michael Mejia, who are on this post-community release supervision, on a third violation to be returned to the court, which doesn't necessarily mean they will get violated, but they'll have a hearing in front of a judge with the defense attorney, with the prosecutor, where the probation officer will have to write a report to the court or show up, and there will be a much more involved examination of the individual's behavior, and that will create more accountability. To access some other things, like I mentioned, restoring DNA collection for low-level misdemeanors, which has been proven to solve violent crimes like rape and murder. And it would also increase penalties for repeat theft offenders. You know, burglaries and shoplifting just off the chart right now in California. And it would prohibit early release for people doing time for violent crimes like sex trafficking of a minor or assault with a knife. That's the way it should work, right? right. Yeah. Do you want to... Can you stay on the line, Michelle? Absolutely. Awesome. Because right. I want to I just want to talk about the richness of this article, about the fact that the L.A. Times is saying that this gang member, this dangerous drug addict, violent super monster was able to be out to kill Officer Keith Boyer uh, because of failure of law enforcement to keep him locked up for longer. When in 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 that it wasn't AB 109, that's exactly what AB 109 did is it made guys like this get out quicker like do they understand the the flimsiness of this argument it doesn't make any the the disconnect there is these laws 
these inadequacies of supervision did not make Mr. Mejia do bad things. Right. He did that. He did that himself. They just didn't stop him. All right. right. We're talking with Michelle Hannessy. She is the president of the Association of Deputy District Attorneys about this article in the L.A. Times about the specifically the death of uh, Officer Keith Boyer and whether or not the justice reforms that we've seen in the state of California might be to blame. I, we got some more questions when we come back. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. Gary and Shannon, it's Thursday, May 10th. Justin Warsham from the Dad Podcast joins us at the top of the hour, but... We've been talking with Michelle Hannessy, president of the Association of Deputy District Attorneys, about this article that uh, hit this morning from the L.A. Times, uh, referring to the death of Officer Whittier Police Officer Keith Boyer and whether or not the justice reforms that we have seen, specifically AB 109 in the state of California, might be to blame for this, which is the strangest way to write a headline, because I can think of all of one person that is responsible for the death of Officer Keith Boyer. And that's this animal, Michael Mejia. Now, Michael Mejia is is uh, has enough brain cells to rub together. He knows what AB 109 is. And, Michelle, I was going to ask you, um, he said something in his own confession that AB 109 had something to do with this, didn't he? He did. And, and they quote me accurately quoting Mr. Mejia, and they provide more. Mr. Mejia said, I did it because of AB 109, except there was a word that starts with F before AB 109 when he was making the statement. Um, and he said they should, have, they should have left us on parole. They should spend money on kids with cancer, kids that need it instead of us. That's exactly what he said. I didn't understand that. Does that mean that he should not – he feels that he should not have been going back and forth to, uh, to jail off and on? I would not characterize Mr. Mejia as an articulate or organized speaker. Okay. So one would have to review his entire statement and draw conclusions. But when it, going back to the article in the headline, again, I, I, like I said, I wanted to, to say what's wrong here. And the headline says, are California justice, California's justice reforms to blame? Question mark. There is nowhere in this article where it concludes that Mejia's crime was not a result of the policies implemented with AB 109. And they very specifically cite this panel study that says county agencies failed to document all of his rule breaking, didn't share important information with one another, and gave him an excessive number of chances while they continued breaking the rules of the supervision. That's what the article says, and that is why it would be better to refer him back to court. Well, and one of the... yeah, go ahead. One of the members of the pa- uh, the panel that worked on this for the county that looked into all of this was the police chief in Arcadia, Bob Guthrie. And he says that, if nothing else, this is an important backdrop. You know, he said that he has not stated that there was a direct connection between AB 109 and the murder of uh, of Officer Boyer, but that there has definitely a cor- there is definitely a correlation. And why it is that people won't recognize the corollary here, the correlation to AB 109 as as promoting an increase in crime, of promoting the availability of these guys to be out on the street to perform these criminal acts. Well, that's right. And AB 109 doesn't make anyone commit crime. Every individual who commits a crime chooses to do so of their own free will for whatever reason. But it created a system where it makes it easier for them, and that's what we don't want. 
looks like the breakdown with him uh, happened when the county had to take over supervising him because he was being supervised uh, by state parole officers. And then suddenly he's got to be under this huge umbrella that the uh, of people that the county has to take on. And that's when he was breaking his probation rules, getting his gang tattoos on his face and everything. Uh, it just it just makes me sick. Um, the the list of of nonviolent crimes uh, still does not include uh, rape of an unconscious person, sex trafficking of a child and uh, 14 other serious crimes as violent. So that's why it's so important when November comes to go ahead and pass uh, this reducing crime and keeping California safe act of 2018. Uh, Michelle, I wanted to ask you just a side 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 question. One of the things that this would do would be to expand DNA collection to include people convicted of drug theft, DV and other serious crimes to help solve rape and murder and other like violent crimes. I just have a question. We, we spent a lot of time talking about the Golden State Killer. And today we're going to be talking to an investigator that's working on the Zodiac case from the 60s. Is your office looking at this new, uh, you know, reverse family tree DNA investigative technique to, to solve any cases? Is that something that's like a buzz in the prosecutor community? Everyone in law enforcement is buzzing about it. The, mm-hmm. the Sacramento DA, Anne-Marie Schubert, who did this, has always been a DNA innovator in this state. She's brilliant and really knows her stuff. And everyone's very excited about this. But we have to be very cautious. We don't need any cowboys rushing in and you know, doing things that might compromise people's privacy rights. So if, and when you're in law enforcement, you always have to be very, very cognizant of all the aspects and impacts of a potential new investigatory device like this. So everyone's excited, but everyone's also prepared to proceed very cautiously. Yeah. All right, Michelle, we appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Michelle Hannessy there, president of the Association of Deputy DAs. Again, um, the Reducing Crime and Keeping California Safe Act of 2018 due on the ballot in November. Go to keepcalsafe.org if you want some more information about that ballot measure. Um, this is a uh, – it's one of those frustrating stories, and I, I referred to to the comment from the Arcadia Police Chief Bob Guthrie, and I'm going to read the quote directly because I think it's important. I've never stated there is a direct connection, nor would I now – in terms of um, whether or not AB 109 was responsible in some way for Michael Mejia being out. But it says, he says, do I believe there's a correlation? Yes, I do. And to me, you kind of mentioned this earlier, it's the high-profile cases that we see, and it's the high-profile cases of a murder, of a, of a domestic violence incident that is horrific or something. Those are the ones that rise to the level of getting everyone's attention. But there are dozens, if not hundreds, and potentially thousands of other crimes that go unreported, at least in the media, that are that are perpetrated by these guys who are let out, mostly guys, and you're telling- out of you know the county jails and the state prisons yeah. because of these these new realignment and, rules. And you're telling me that it's a coincidence that the homeless population has exploded in San Francisco, Orange County, Los Angeles. Oh, it's just a coincidence. I mean. It's really affecting all aspects of, of life in California, and something needs to be done about it because it's insane. And we're going to see more and more and, of these and guys. And again, this is the thing that pisses me off. It's always, well, the U.S. Supreme Court told us that uh, we have to have a cap on the number of inmates in prison. Well, explain the rest of the decision because it goes on to say if capacity could not be increased through new construction. 
I love the idea of build more schools, not prisons. But how about we address the criminals that we have right now and then think about more schools for the future and and all of that? Because that's all great and Pollyanna and unicorn land. But the idea that we have too many people in prison, so let's let them out. That's insane. That's insanity. Sociologists will tell you that when you get these guys back in the community, they become icons and role models, whether they mean to or not. And the kids are going to look up to this guy who had been in prison six times or something like that. You need space? Drive out to Vegas and see how much space there is for new prisons. Gary and Shannon will continue. Justin Warsham from the Dad Podcast is going to join us up next. This is odd. I hadn't heard about this, but H.R. McMaster's dad was in a senior care facility in Philadelphia, and he fell, hit his head. This was at Cathedral Village Retirement Community, and eight hours later, he died. And now a nurse has been charged with involuntary manslaughter, neglect, and records tampering. And covering it up, too. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Um, Gary and Shannon, it's Thursday, May 10th. A couple stories that we're going to get back to in the next uh, hour in the 1230 segment we get into Swamp Watch. The prisoners have come back from North Korea. They landed several hours ago at Joint Base Andrews. uh, And, in fact, uh, President Trump, First Lady, Mike Pence, they were all there to greet these three guys coming back from their uh, detainment in North Korea. And also, Israel has started... um, firing back against Iranian positions in Syria. We talked with Brian Suits last hour about that, and he seems to be under the impression that they are basically setting up for a ground invasion of Syria to get to these Iranian positions. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Jordana Miller is in Jerusalem. We're trying to get a hold of her so that we can talk to her about that also next hour. Well, right now, though, being it Thursday and it being 11 a.m., we talked to Justin, host of the Dad Podcast, all about parenting. And it's about that time of year when parents are figuring out what to do with their little darlings for the summer. <laughs> darlings. <laughs> little darlings. I got to admit, I think, um, I think that there are parents, if you're a stay-at-home parent, uh, the school uh, school year Gives you a certain amount of away time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in September, it may be difficult to sort of send your kids off and realize that they're under the care of another adult for that long of the day. But when May and June come around and you realize those kids are up in your business yeah. all day, every <laughs> yeah, day, buddy. that could be tough. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, so a sleepaway camp is probably not a bad option for a some A comic people. friend of mine, Heath Heitch, who works on the Disney Cruise Line a lot, he has a bit about that very thing where you get on the cruise and mom is like, oh, children, we're going to have such a fantastic time. And then by Thursday, it's like... Everybody shut up! We're going to enjoy our pancake breakfast, and you're going to smile next to Mickey! Do you understand me? Wait, wait, I have a question, though. I I was always under the idea that on those Disney cruises, it's like you get on the boat, and then you don't see your kids for a week. (laughs) I'm sure there are people who are doing that, that too. That that happens in a movie theater. Did you ever go to camp? I went to a, I went to sixth grade camp, which yeah. is like now we call it outdoor, outdoor science school. school. Yeah. And uh, this is I, I put out a tweet asking, and I was going to ask you guys the same question. It's like, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think summer camp? Unrequited and, love. 
Oh, that, I got that a lot. There was people who celebrated their first kiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that I thought was interesting was that he was. He, he goes, I have very bad memories. And I go, what happened? And he said, I thought I was going to a cool summer camp and was specifically told it was not a Bible camp. And then I showed up. And it was a Bible camp. Yeah, that could and put so, a damper on your oh, spirit. Because so I thought I was playing outdoor that. games and it was yeah. going to be fun. And, and then he goes, it was just a lot of puppet Jesus. shows with Jesus and Satan. Right. <laughs> wow. Um, I want to get to the unrequited love. Yeah. Well, I just think it's like Westworld, but the robots don't kiss back. Yeah. I mean, it's like it, there. there's very few rules. It's one of those. It's the first time, I think, as a kid, 8, 9, 10, 11, however old you are, if you go by yourself, I mean, even if you go with friends, you get to reinvent yourself for a week. You know, you get to tell people whatever backstory you want. Yeah. For, for you know, because you're you're it's like going to college. Yes. But I mean, this is the first opportunity that you have to do it. It's like going to college with no consequences, too, because you're there for what, a week, maybe right. two. And then you go back to your regular life. Yeah, that's so true. It's like you get a little do-over about who you are sure. for the first time. You tell stories about your girlfriend who lives in Canada or whatever. Did and... you have a girlfriend that lived in Canada? Uh, that did summer. You, so wait, did you reinvent yourself or make up a, a lie about who you were? I mean, you know. I follow the question, what's the difference? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, like lie, like like um, tangible lie. No, like, I, went, I have a girlfriend in Canada. One I specifically remember, I went with my cousin. So he and I... We, it was like an agreement, like a gentleman's agreement. I won't call you out if I hear you blatantly tell a lie about yourself. Wow. Like, my parents are rich. Yeah. And he would just stand there and be like, totally rich. Like, super loaded. <laughs> Sounds like a great wingman. Yeah. <laughs> that, that I vaguely remember. But I think, I mean, I don't. I remember going to outdoor school and uh, it being, what, sixth grade, right? Yeah. And you're gone for a week. And it's probably the first time you're away from your parents for that long. Um, and I remember getting a letter from my mother in the mail and, you know, they yeah. bring you your mail and I thought it was like the coolest thing. And I was so happy to get the letter. Even, even though, though she probably wrote it a week before you left. I still, re- I like, still I miss remember you. the contents of the letter actually, because she had said, uh, that they, it was her birthday I was gone for. And she said that they had gotten like Chinese food for her birthday or something like that. Like I remember that detail and thinking, Oh, I was at home for the. Chinese food. They Chinese yeah. food. Yeah. It's interesting because all of these things that I always feel like summer camp gets a bad rap. For me, uh for me, it's it's body hair. That's the I I'm trying to clean it up a little bit. That's mm. what it what was. What do you mean? It was very much an issue uh with the the, the boys in our group about who had body hair oh. and who didn't. So in you sixth talked grade. about stuff oh. like that. No. No, and probably would have been a little bit less of an issue and more healthy if we were all. The, we all knew what we were thinking when, and they made us do like group showers. That oh, was. Oh, I see. Everything else about uh, sixth grade camp, I had a blast. I had yeah. a fun time in the it in was the bunks just the and naked group shower. The naked group shower. Weirdly <laughs> enough, that I found borderline traumatic. I don't know why. It was, and there was this guy, uh, Larry. His full name was Lawrence. Uh, he had a lot of body hair. And y'all did he. Oh, my God. He was like a 32-year-old in that group shower. And it just wasn't fair. Because he was the only one walking around with swagger. Like, he was the only one completely comfortable in his own skin. Or his own hair. Right. Well, or lack thereof skin. Well, I would imagine that um, you have had this discussion with uh, with your wife uh, about whether your kids are going to go to summer camp. Oh, this will never happen. This is why I brought it up is because – so we talk about all these awkwardness. And overall – Camp is a very positive experience. 
uh, for kids to go. There's there's multiple benefits. There's the nurturing social skills. It's modeling healthy living because in a lot of camps now they offer healthy meal alternatives, mm-hmm. but they also offer cooking classes and gardening classes that they can learn. Uh, the the biggest one I thought was uh, interesting is that it eases what they call the summer slide. Each kid loses about two to three months of grade equivalent learning over the summer because it's two to three months. Uh, so, but if they go to camp, especially camps that have like STEM systems, you know, for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, they can help keep them at grade level uh, over the summer. But all kids, 70% of parents say that their kids came home from camp more self-confident than when they left. Absolutely. I can totally see that. Yes. But you said it's never going to happen. I'll ask you that why when we come back. Gary and Shannon will continue. Justin Warsham, host of the Dad Podcast, has joined us to talk about the benefits of summer camp, even though his kids will never go. (laughs) Also, your chance at $1,000 coming up in just a few minutes. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. Gary and Shannon. Get back to Justin Warsham, host of the Dad Podcast, in a moment. But first, your chance to win $1,000. Your shot at $1,000 now. Text the keyword cash to 200-200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's cash to 200-200. You'll be notified by phone if you win. But if you don't pick up that phone, then you are not the winner. Make sure you uh, stick around because there's another chance to win an hour from now. And, in fact, every hour through the first hour of the Conway Show tonight. Justin Warsham, host of the Dad Podcast, is here. We're talking about uh, summer camps, the impact of uh, summer camps for your kids on skills, on happiness, on their resilience, on their love life, all that sort of stuff. But <laughs> the Warsham children will never see the inside of, uh, of a summer camp cabin. Why is that? Uh, the body hair? Yes, yes. I is it because really, of Lawrence? It's because of Lawrence. Oh, if I, I, if I thought it was illegal to say his last name, I'm. Oh, <laughs> the guy was so lucky. All the girls wanted him, Lawrence. And it, I wonder what happened to him. Hope he's arrested. No, no, I'm um, no. So anyway, uh, the reason is is because I live uh, very, very, very adjacent to my kid's school, right? And just to let my kids walk to school by themselves was a fight I for my wife and I. And then uh, and then now I won that fight. So maybe it is likely there is one camp that uh, a listener of the Dad Podcast recommended to me that I find really interesting. It's called Tinkering School. If you go to tinkeringschool.com, they do, like, they build a roller coaster with the campers. They find these, ama- but it's it's about trades. It's about building, working with wood, working with metal, and the, the counselors come up with whatever the big project is. And That's they do very cool. kind of like a sample of it during the rest of the year to try and see, are we pushing the envelope of what is possible with this group of kids? Uh, it's very independent. There's not a lot of, like, rules of doing this. There's, like, three basic rules. You don't hit people. And you're nice, and that's it. And no Jesus puppet shows. Not, not as far as I'm aware of at this point. But they, but the, then you get into these camps, and that's another aspect of this altogether. Even in Southern California, I could not find a camp for a week long that was less than about sixteen hundred dollars. Yeah. Average though was about four or five thousand dollars for one kid, just for oh, a week. Wow. That's like that's like a baseball fantasy camp. Yeah. That's a and at least you come home with for... your a uniform with your name on it at that point. Yeah. That's this, a vacation for the whole family. And this $5, tinkering school is up in the Bay Area near San Francisco. It's in it's in the peninsula, and they don't even let you register. You register, 
and then you go into a lottery. That's how much of a waiting list they have. Wow. I didn't see anything on. There's another one here in Southern California that's very popular called Pally Adventures, uh, and they they do something very similar where they they build things or they they do Hollywood stunt uh, X classes and stuff like that 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 kids really like, and that's a that's a high end. One, but you get a lot of reward out of it. Why don't you want your kids to get rewarded? I do want my kids to get rewarded, and that's the thing. The, the whole idea of this, when I when I started thinking about it, it came from there's Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, who's a child development specialist I had on the show. She wrote great books called uh, No Drama Discipline and The Whole Brain Child, which I highly recommend. And she was working on cultivating, like she's working on a book to kind of demonstrate the research and benefits of summer camp, sleepaway camp in particular, because if you look at it. I think intuitively you would imagine that it's hard to understand that being away from your parents, the people who are supposed to take care of you, is good for you. But there's research going way back to the 60s that shows that uh, there's, there seems to be a kind of steady decline or, or in, an increase in depression and anxiety. I'm saying a decline of happiness in kids. Mm-hmm. So the anxiety and depression is on an upswing, right? And then you got helicopter parenting is now a thing where in and it's more about attachment it's more about keeping them close the family has become more inside the house there's not a lot of kids riding around That's what I'm playing saying. bikes Just outside go outside and i that, feel like the depression and anxiety would go away if more people spent time outside and the experts would agree with you on that 10% i know that's how i feel 10% uh, <laughs> what is it? let me find this 10% of uh, this is from the Na- uh, nature conservancy only 10% of children spend time outdoors every day Weird. That's, yeah, right? That's not that's Especially not for good. all, like, we're all yeah. of the generation where you came home when the lights came on. Like, that was just, right. that was the only rule and we had. And we literally live in an area where it's physically possible to do that every yes. day. You know? And the research shows that helicopter parenting, now that now it's been around long enough, actually increases your child's likelihood of be- developing problems with anxiety, of depression, yeah. and drug and alcohol abuse. Of course, there's too so, much pressure. You're always on top of them. You know, I'm, I'm surprised they don't open more uh, nature schools, like schools that are done outside. You know, they give, give the kids proper shade and water and everything, but like among <laughs> trees or whatever. Well, I think you're right, because we've talked a lot about like pendulum swinging and kids and how we deal with kids in education. And I think that that is the direction that the pendulum is swinging. I keep bringing it up because it, and it connects back to this. But uh, that book I read about German parenting, Achtung Baby, they do that even in preschool. You will have a preschool teacher go out in the woods with four or five kids, but there you can go into the woods by just walking 20 feet off the beaten path of a park. Yeah. And you're there and you're in the woods and you just hang out and camp for a little bit. And then you come home and the kids are like, we had so much fun. We saw this bug and blah, blah, blah. And they think it's great because there it's normal. And I think it's the same thing. Like when I was in third grade, I was home by myself for at least two to three hours. I would get up and get myself to school all by myself. I never felt neglected. I never felt abused. I never thought my dad didn't love me or anything like that. But I think in today's standards, that's definitely the case. And that in today's world, most parents probably, I was shocked that 14 million kids in the U.S. go to uh, sleepaway camp for at least a week over the summer. I, w- I felt like that number was really high, given the tone of people that I know and have talked to everywhere, not just here in Southern California. A lot of people need to get away from their kids. But the, you know, the thing is, is that if you're a parent and you send your kid to sleepaway camp, I think the stigma is, is that, oh, you need a break, that it's more about you. Really? Yeah. And huh. it's not about the kid. But the parents who do send it are the ones who it's about the kid. There's a there's one here, uh, the Catalina one, uh, Catalina Island Camps. And I don't know if this, I have a friend, her daughter goes to sailing camp every summer. That sounds expensive. And they let a bunch of nine-year-olds, that one's actually not too expensive compared to the others. But they let a bunch of nine-year-olds out on a boat by themselves sailing a boat. 
I mean, they've taught them and everything like right. that. But And I don't know if that's this camp, but there's a sailing camp that my friend sends her daughter to. And she goes out and she toodles around on a boat in the bay having a good old time. And my dad did that for me, only I did it on a Hobie cat in a lake in Oakdale, California. But I, I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was incredible and it was great. And being by myself, even though when I one time I tipped the boat over and, I, and this 22-year-old on a speedboat who was partying with all of his friends had to come and help me because I wasn't big enough to even flip this boat back over, I showed this 22-year-old how to help me <laughs> and do it. And I know it sounds super sappy, but it made me more confident in that moment. That sure. experience, overcoming that triumph. What is it? The... Um, 74% of kids that go to camp say they did something they were afraid to do at first. Yes. That's a it's huge It's getting you out deal. of your comfort zone, yes. you know, and with new people and 96% say camp helped them make new friends. 92%, these are campers, say that it made them feel good about themselves. And you still don't want to send the kids away? I want to, but I'm saying it's. Yeah. I have to fight the, the mama bear. Oh, and she's a okay. very strong mama bear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's got a lot of leverage, too. <laughs> well, maybe right now they're too young, you know, yeah. maybe down nope. the line when they're like 11 seven or 13 to 16 or something. Is the age. Yeah, seven to go. 16 is the, I think seven is the youngest I saw of camps, even in Southern California. Justin Warsham is host of the Dad Podcast. You can find out some more information about some of the camps that we were talking about up on the website if you want to go to KFIAM640.com. Use the keyword Gary and Shannon. And, of course, check out thedadpodcast.com. You want great. to go to uh, Tinkering School, don't you? I do. It oh. sounds cool. By the way, on that same note, great episode of the Dad Podcast came out uh, with my Right Wellness Center that's a sex and family therapist that comes on the show. We talk a lot about the insecurities of uh, sex within your marriage. And then also we kind of talk about that how the definition fun. of masculinity is shifting and changing. If that's of any interest to you, go Excellent. to dadpodcast.com. That's, All right. That sounds good. That's true. Like All the right. whole what does it mean to be a man thing? All up for debate these Why days. Why are you looking at me? Because <laughs> I always look at you when I'm talking on this show. Uh, when we come back, one of the investigators <laughs> one of the investigators into the Zodiac Killer case is going to join us to talk about why the Golden State Killer case could be a key into solving the Zodiac case. Coming up next, Gary and Shannon will continue. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. We are staying on top of all of the action between Iran and Israel in Syria will be going live to Jerusalem coming up in the next hour. But we wanted to talk about all the conversations sur- surrounding the Golden State Killer. One of the one of the more tantalizing ones is could we using this reverse family tree technology possibly find out the answer to the other unsolved mystery of California in terms of serial murders, and that is who is the Zodiac Killer? The Zodiac Killer uh, operated, we believe, in the San Francisco Bay Area from uh, from 1968 into 1969. There were five, at least the murders of five people that have been conclusively linked to this person, whoever it is. Although the Zodiac, in a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle, may have actually claimed as many as 37 bodies. So we saw when the Golden State Killer arrest was announced a couple of weeks ago 
uh, a whole new renewed interest in this Zodiac Killer case and the investigation thereof. Tom Voigt has been investigating this for, oh, I don't know, 20 years. He's one of these amateur sleuths, these amateur true crime hunters, uh, like Michelle McNamara, of course, who wrote the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Tom joins us now. Tom, 20 years hunting down the Zodiac Killer. What got you started on this? My father was a... uh... He was a writer in the Los Angeles area. He worked for a few different newspapers. He was actually nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for a story he did on some of the writing that was down there in the late 60s. So I think it's in my blood. And um, and the Zodiac case was, was something I heard about when I was a really little kid. And once I grew up, I just thought, whatever happened to that guy? And it was kind of a no-brainer to... Uh, to start a website and try to catch him. I mean, it was a no-brainer for me. For other people, they think I must be crazy, but I didn't really have a choice. I just kind of had to do it. Well, but you're you're not law enforcement, but you've been get, given access to uh, to some things that other people outside of law enforcement wouldn't have. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's it's been. Um, I think I was the right person in the right place at the right time. Uh, not long after I launched uh, ZodiacKiller.com, John Walsh at America's Most Wanted. Uh, featured my website, and uh, that that got me off and running. He liked what he saw, and uh, he worked with so many police departments and so many different detective types, and he liked what he saw and what I was doing, and that really kind of gave me credibility. And within a few months of of being on uh, mentioned on America's Most Wanted, I was brought into the uh, several uh, Zodiac police departments that had that had open cases, including the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, and just recently, uh, late last year, I was invited down to the Vallejo Police Department to help them with their Zodiac evidence. So it's it, it was mind-boggling, you know, to be in the evidence room and to be able to go through their boxes and, and look at all the materials they've collected, some of which I saw, I thought, could have been from the Zodiac. I, I, I was just mesmerized by it, and I, I'd like to, you know, in an ideal world, I get to go back in there and, and have more time and, and look at everything again. Just getting text messages here. It looks like you're uh, good friends with one of the KFI family members, Brian Suits. That's <laughs> Brian Suits there. Okay, he owes me five bucks. <laughs> he owes everybody five bucks. Um, the uh, the story of DNA is uh, obviously incredibly important in the case of the Golden State Killer. Do you think it's DNA that would eventually solve the uh, Zodiac Killer case? Yes, I, I don't know what else could conclusively solve it. Uh, you know, the handwriting that handwriting is one of those topics that I've had people over the years that think that their their dad, for example, had the same handwriting as the Zodiac, and and it used to be that that experts thought, well, if we could find a match to the Zodiac's handwriting, then we'll be able to convict that person. Unfortunately, uh, the reality is, in the last ten years, there have been at least five professional so-called document examiners who have used handwriting to to supposedly prove who the Zodiac was. And, of course, in each case, it was a different person. So handwriting, you can throw that out. That'll never be admissible if there's a trial. Really, all that's left is DNA. And I've been a proponent for a long time of getting the state of California to collect all the Zodiac evidence and use state funds to test everything, get a full DNA profile, and then do what was done in the Golden State Killer case, and that's use the databases to uh, to try to find a match. But unfortunately, as it stands now, the the jurisdictions, the police, local police departments that have Zodiac cases, they just don't have the money to 
to do any testing and to focus on a 50-year-old case. Well, and one of the problems that I've read about could be that with the Golden State Killer cases, law enforcement was getting an idea that DNA will be helpful in the future. Uh, maybe not right now, not back then, but in the future, maybe. They were they were just beginning to learn how to, um, to keep it intact and things like that. Is the DNA in, in the Zodiac Killer case or whatever DNA exists, is it still intact? Is it usable? Is it, uh, or, or was it, uh, was it, I guess, what, what would you say? What happens to DNA when it's compromised? Degraded. Yeah, degraded. degraded. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the only DNA profile that I'm aware of that's ever been developed uh, was, a, it was a genetic uh, material that was taken uh, from the outside of a stamp that was on a Zodiac correspondence. So uh, nothing behind the stamp or on the seal of the envelope where every Zodiac would be likely to lick. Uh, nothing was found there. All that was recovered was from the outside of a stamp. So it could have been from the mailman. I mean, there's still a chance it's Zodiac's DNA, but it's not. to me it's not a very good chance. And there's some renewed testing going on right now, however. The Vallejo Police Department uh, has a detective on the case named Terry Poiser, and he's determined to, to make something happen and, and to advance the case. And so uh, two or three Zodiac letters and envelopes uh, were submitted uh, to a lab for testing, and apparently as early as next month the results could be back. And I have my fingers crossed that there will be a Zodiac DNA profile finally and taken from behind the stamp or someplace where it's likely to only belong to the Zodiac. Tom, can you hang on for just a couple minutes? I have a, a couple more questions I'd love to ask you. Sure. All right. Tom Voigt right now is uh, an amateur sleuth who has uh, set up ZodiacKiller.com. That, by the way, is how he's making money to uh, to continue his pursuit of wanna, whoever it is the Zodiac Killer is. I want to ask him, too, if there's anything he saw in those evidence rooms, because he was given such uh, great access that, that we don't know about with the Zodiac case. Of course, books, movies, everything has been written about this, but I bet he knows some things that we all don't know. Gary and Shannon will continue just a moment. Gary and Shannon. Hey, next hour, not only are we going to get into Swamp Watch, talk about the uh, Americans coming back from North Korea, we're going to discuss what's going on in Israel and Syria today because uh, Israeli missiles hit several areas of Syria that were believed to be Iranian bases, and we'll talk about that. Also, Grandmom Pop Pop can't retire uh, because their kids are uh, addicted to opioids, so someone's got to take care of the grandkids. So that's all coming up next hour. Right now we're talking to Tom Voigt, amateur sleuth, as it were. He runs ZodiacKiller.com. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. ZodiacKiller.com. And, uh, Tom, you had access to some of these evidence rooms um, in jurisdictions where the Zodiac Killer struck. Oh, is there stuff that you know about that hasn't been publicized? Yeah, and almost by accident, actually, because, um, you know, the, so the police have been collecting evidence for 50 years now. This is the 50th year of the whole Zodiac mystery. And so uh, so it's not as organized as one might think because uh, when you have that much evidence, it accumulates rapidly. And then, of course, the public is is always sending the police, you know, information that they that they think that they have discovered and they want the police to have. So these boxes, there's just boxes everywhere. And I reached into one box and 
and pulled out what I thought would be just some, I don't I wasn't really sure what to expect, but I found a bunch of papers, I pulled them out, and it turned out they were original police reports from 1969 that were just, that were that were there, and I mixed in with a lot of other stuff that that had been sent by the public. These were original Vallejo Police Department reports, uh, and uh, the detective that was bringing the boxes out recognized what they were and said, oh, my gosh, have they, those shouldn't be there. And, you know, they were very, very old, and so he whisked them away uh, to be photographed before they turned to dust. <laughs> so luckily, uh, you know, those reports are now on on CD, so they're preserved forever. But uh, yeah, that was just one. That was one moment that sticks in my mind, and I, I was able to browse through them briefly and saw a few names of suspects that I'd never seen before. So that was pretty cool. How many? We heard when the Golden State Killer case was um, uh, was wrapped up or concluded. It looks like, for the most part, that there was one point they had eight thousand names of suspects. Would you say the list is that large for the Zodiac Killer potential suspects? Oh, ten times that. Oh, wow. I, I probably just in the last couple of years received about eight thousand names. Uh, the case got publicized. You know, a whole new generation got exposed back in two thousand seven, thanks to Robert Downey Jr. and uh, the David Fincher movie. And so everybody who saw that movie, they can all remember somebody from their past, elementary school teacher or a creepy uncle uh, that they decided could be the Zodiac killer. And of course, they send all the information to me. So, uh, yeah, eight thousand is is a big number, but Zodiac has uh, about 10 years on on the Golden State Killer in terms of when it all started. So, yeah, there's a lot of information. And Michelle McNamara, you know, she was uh, one of the early supporters of ZodiacKiller.com. So she goes back, you know, I had connections with her back in 1998, and she was around, and, and I didn't know that she had such an interest in the Golden State Killer. I was really surprised when her name became connected to it because she started off as a, as a Zodiac buff. But when you compare... You know the the numbers. Uh, I don't know what Zodiac's final tally was, but I know the Golden State Killer. His crimes. There were just hundreds of them, and there are people who think the Golden State Killer could be the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, what if, what is the timing on that? And if you could talk about the mo for the Zodiac Killer, we've spent a lot of of time on this show talking about Golden State Killer and what his mo was. What what did the Zodiac Killer do? The Zodiac just he was really the original domestic terrorist his uh, the weapons he used and the people he targeted it varied uh, but and and the areas that he was active varied but but what didn't vary was the fact that he just wanted to scare everybody and really make people feel unsafe and he did that through his written communications primarily to the local newspapers he also made a few phone calls and, and similar to you know the Golden State killer called his victims previous victims, uh, and did things to, to taunt investigators. He showed up at a community meeting that was about keeping the community safe from the Golden State Killer, targeted one of the people who was in attendance at that meeting. Um, and over the years, actually, there are a few things that I've learned about Golden State Killer as well that were not publicized, that were kept secret, and I'll keep them secret as well. I'll continue to until the trial's over. But some of the some of the people who worked the Zodiac also worked the Golden State Killer, so I was able to find out some really creepy details about that guy that haven't been revealed. He was the really kind of the worst of the worst. But now Zodiac's the last one standing. The Green River Killer got caught. He was unsolved forever and had lots of victims. The BTK Strangler got caught after you know, and all these guys. It was thought that they could never stop on their own from being from being serial killers. 
but now we have all these examples of, of serial killers that actually it turned out they did stop killing for a long time before they got caught. And I think the Zodiac, it, not only is he the last one, but he might have stopped as well. He might be living in, you know, in L.A. in your neighborhood somewhere. He is, though. Is he still alive? If he's still alive, he could have stopped, just like Joseph D'Angelo apparently stopped committing crimes as the Golden State Killer. And uh, and I, I hope the Zodiac's still alive because I'd like to see him get prosecuted. Uh, and and if and if the Green River Killer and the BTK Strangler and the Golden State Killer are, are you know, those guys managed to stop on their own without getting arrested or anything, so it stands to reason the Zodiac could have as well. So he might very well still be alive. And if they get him, then instead of just knowing who he was, oh, it's a dead guy, that doesn't help anybody. But if he's still alive, then they find out who he is through DNA and then prosecute him. That's the ultimate goal for me. Looking up the timeline of uh, Joseph D'Angelo, the guy they've got for the Golden State killer crimes, and looks like he got back from Vietnam in 67 and then went to Sierra College starting in August 68. And that's when it looks like uh, the uh, the 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 Zodiac killer crimes began. Theoretically, right. he was in Sacramento when the Zodiac was active in the Bay Area. Yeah, and that's not a very long drive. Nope. There are some interesting coincidences. You know, that's like a 45-minute drive or an hour drive from Sacramento to San Francisco. It was thought that Zodiac could have had a law enforcement background because of, of details that he revealed about himself and the way he conducted himself at the crime scenes. And, of course, D'Angelo had a law enforcement background. It was thought that the Zodiac had uh, military experience, primarily in the Navy. And, of course, D'Angelo was in the Navy, uh, and, and you know, they match up well. Zodiac was in Southern California at the approximate time D'Angelo was down there. Uh, it's it, There are some interesting similarities, and it's, it's, I, I really want to see D'Angelo's handwriting. Because yeah. I know what Zodiac's handwriting looks like. I really want to see D'Angelo's handwriting. Well, they uh, found some, like, scribbled notes um, at the time of the East Area Rapist about uh, sixth grade was a hard year for me or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But who knows if he was masking his handwriting the way he would mask different things about him during his crimes. You know, he would he would say he wasn't familiar with a certain area to kind of throw people off and, and all that. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if, some of those materials that were recovered that were thought to belong to the East Area Rapist, uh, Golden State Killer, if they were truly from him. Uh, it's going to be an interesting year as the trial, you know, as everything progresses. And a quick question for you and, and your expertise. Have you, do you know of a, let's just play around with the idea that it's the same guy. Would it be odd that he went from killing to then ransacking in Visalia and then just the uh, the rapes and then killing again? It, or does, doesn't somebody usually ramp up to killing? Well, who knows when he started? I, you know, the, uh, the Visalia ransackings, which uh, eventually it's thought that that's how D'Angelo started his crime spree and eventually became the East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker. Uh, he would have been in his late 20s when those earliest Vazilia crimes started. And I don't think he waited until he was in his late 20s to start committing crimes. I think he probably started, uh, like most uh, criminals, serial killers, especially in their teens, with uh, with different types of uh, deviant behavior. So I, I think that he might have been very well experienced at a number of different uh, types of crimes by the time uh, that Zodiac would have would would have come on the scene. And uh, I think that it's all going to come out. I think he was a, probably the most prolific criminal that uh, I'll ever live to see. Interesting. Well, Tom, we appreciate it. And very insightful. Love this stuff. Thank you. 
Thanks for having me. You bet. Tom Voigt there. And again, he is the guy behind ZodiacKiller.com, this uh, investigator based in Portland that has sort of taken this, uh, taken on this mantle of being uh, one of the, I guess you could say, lead investigators when it comes to the Zodiac case. Coming back, all of what's trending next on Gary and Shannon. Michelle's here today. I am. I just saw a tweet from Dorinda. Uh Uh-oh. It says, thank you, everyone, for all your super kind messages. Difficult times come and go. Just keep it moving. (laughs) I heart Dorinda. She she wants to just keep it moving. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. No, I'm thinking of a different. I'm thinking of the different show. I'm thinking of the L.A. show. What's that one's name? It's like Dorinda, isn't it? Dorit. Dorit. That's what I'm thinking Very different people. Yes. And I hate her. Oh, me too. Dorit's the worst. Oh worst. I call her Dorito. Oh, that's cute. I call, worst housewife ever. I call her <laughs> zero perspective. <laughs> uh, at the uh, bottom of the hour, we are going to be joined by Andy Field to talk more about the Americans coming back from North Korea. In fact, that is our number one trending story today, Blake. Time for What's Happening. President Trump will meet with Kim Jong-un on Bill Handle Day, June 12th in Singapore. It's a big deal, a very important deal. We figured out that the date and place were figured out while Mike Pompeo was in North Korea to pick up the three American detainees. It was 3 o'clock this morning, D.C. time, when they landed at Joint Base Edwards. The president, the first lady, and the vice president were all there to greet these three guys. Uh, there will be... Many, 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 many days of interviews with these guys going on uh, as we try to get some amount of intelligence as to what is going on in the in- inner workings of North Korea. President Trump saying North Korea's Kim Jong-un was excellent to these three incredible people. However, uh, Vice President Mike Pence said in an ABC interview that they did endure harsh conditions. And Mike Pompeo said that after a refueling stop up in Anchorage, one of the detainees asked to go outside the plane because he hadn't seen daylight in so long. I don't know if I'm the president if I say that uh, Kim Jong-un was excellent to these people. Well, yeah. And it's weird that, you know, it wasn't, wasn't too long ago that they were trading insults about each other. Right. That he would now change his tune to say... He's a great guy. He's just, you know, misunderstood. Little Rocket Man was excellent to these people. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that meeting. Maybe he's channeling Bill and Ted. What Maybe. do you mean? Bill and Ted 3. Yeah, excellent. Another question. Yeah. Does Donald Trump take Dennis Rodman with him to Singapore? You know what? You bring up a very good point. Yesterday I was opining about Rex Tillerson and how he has been totally forgotten in this big victory lap with the Coreas. Um, and, and and how he was really the first one to go over there and have some diplomatic uh, talks. Dennis Rodman has he, been lost in all this. He predated the Rex Tillerson You're talks. absolutely right. Just saying. Now, one of the trending stories today is this, uh, or this police call at Yale. A white person voices suspicious, uh, suspicions about a, a woman of color sleeping on a couch. Uh, all of not all of it, but uh, good portions of it were, in fact, recorded and posted on social media. Uh, this woman is a Yale graduate student. She happens to be black. A white student found her sleeping in a common room of their dorm and called the police. 
something along the lines of, you can't sleep here. I don't understand why police were called for this for a number of reasons. Um, When there's an issue in the dorm, usually it's the dorm staff, the RAs that handle this. Yeah, well, I'm not saying that uh, Chico State was the most uh, uh, diverse place, but I had to deal with people who were not who were sleeping where they weren't supposed to when I was working in the dorms. Sure, it would have been. It was actually relatively common to escort people out of the building who didn't belong there. But the idea that just because she was black and asleep was somehow an indication to this other student that she didn't belong there doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, the the cops that did show up started questioning her. She posted the entire 17-minute interaction on Facebook Live. Uh, the 34-year-old grad student unlocked her dorm room door in front of police to show them, this is my room. You'll see my ID in my purse on the desk. And they had to prove it. So R. Kelly is in the news. Spotify is removing R. Kelly from playlists. Oh, you mean this R. Kelly? They're taking him away from all Spotify owned and operated playlists and the algorithms they use to push music like Discover Weekly. They say his music will still be on the service, but they're not going to actively promote it. Uh, This is all about its new hate content and hateful conduct policy. Interesting. So he's a cute. Oh, wait a minute. Well, here's the thing. He had that cult with all those young girls in it. Allegedly. So that's not good. He's been accused of of sexual misconduct and assault by multiple women. His representative, by the way, this is one of the more rich uh, moments in the history of irony. R. Kelly's representative says R. Kelly supports the pro-women goals of the Time's Up movement. Rick and Morty are getting another 70 episodes from Adult Swim. You make you Rick and Morty fans? I have not watched Rick and Morty. Uh, Justin Roiland has confirmed he's making 70 more episodes of Rick and Morty. He's the voice actor on the show, tweeted the news of the fourth season earlier today. I did used to like that show on Adult Swim with the cheeseburger and the french fries. Oh, the uh, adult, uh, what was that called? What was the name of that? I loved the song. Hunger Force? Yes. Something like that? Thank you. Didn't see it. Georgina Chapman is back in the news. And you're saying, yeah, you're saying, who is that? That's Harvey Weinstein's wife that has been in hiding, locked in a room. No. That makes sense. With Rex Tillerson. No, that's not true. (laughs) Deborah Brazil? No. Donna Brazil and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. (laughs) Damn it. Uh, No. People that you haven't heard from for a long time after a. Some sort of fall from grace. I thought now now it was Scarlett Johansson who wore one of Georgina Chapman's dresses. Yep, on, Marquesa. Yes, the Marquesa is the brand of uh, that she works for. Or is that she's, uh, a she designer. Did, she's a designer. Designer for them. Yeah. So so Scarlett Johansson wears a Marquesa dress at the red carpet uh, at the Met Gala, which is a big deal. It's kind of like Marquesa's re coming out party because everyone has just not worn the dresses because it's been associated with Harvey Weinstein. Why wouldn't Scarlett... they wear it right away though? That's what I understand. They're not supporting him by wearing that dress. I think I that's know. what she had to qu- to clear up. I think that there's a degree of Dottie Sandusky-ism here where you can't be uh, married to someone for so long and turn ahead for that long and have no idea what's going on. I totally agree. I can, I get, well, 
I don't know. I just thought that this was a long time coming, that there were plenty of award shows where people could have worn her dresses earlier and made that same statement. I kind of think that uh, she married him because she knew that she would have access to a bunch of stars in Hollywood who would all wear her fashions. I love that you almost put on an accent when you said she would wear her fashions. Monica Lewinsky got an uninvite to a town and country magazine event. Doesn't she look so pretty? I've, I've never, I've always thought she was pretty. They had suggested that she come to this party, some town and country magazine event, and she RSVP'd and said, sure. But then you know who also responded, vous, vous played right away? Bill Clinton. Now, so why would some, they be put on the same I have no list? Idea. Why? First, I thought she wanted to stay out of the spotlight. She's a married mom now who, as far as I could tell, why had wanted she... to stay away from this whole story. So why are you inviting or why are you accepting invitations well, to very public, high-profile events? First of all, I think that she had to stay out of the out of the, the spotlight or out of um, social situations for far too long uh, because of something that he did. And she recently wrote that article uh what was that in was that in vanity fair or sounds familiar um maybe it was in town and country i don't know but about the me too movement and about her her kind of place in it because that has been held up as one of those me too situations bill clinton taking advantage of an intern do you think bill bill clinton knew she was invited no no, I do not. When we come back. You think he wanted a rendezvous? No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying he – I don't think he would have RSVP'd. They would have made an arrangement, I would think, where if there was uh, – if they were both invited, the president would say something like, uh, I appreciate it, but I, it's probably not a great idea for us to be in the same place. What does time. Hillary Clinton say when she sees headlines like that? Uh, she just looks at him. She does that slow burn where she's reading the newspaper – and then slowly puts it down as she's looking across the table at Bill Clinton while he's eating his porridge. And his just porridge. <laughs> yeah. That's probably what he eats, right? It's a plant based diet now. Oh. Just porridge. I'm assuming that's plant based. Do people still call it porridge? What is porridge? Oh. Is it like oatmeal? Grits? Yeah. Oatmeal? Yeah. Oh. Oh, it's oatmeal? Something like that. Grammy and Pop Pop can't retire because they got to take care of your opioid-addicted-ass kids. Grab a bowl of porridge and join us for this next topic. Also, your chance at $1,000 coming up. Gary and Shannon will continue. want to give that away or are you just going to sit on it? Well, I was keeping it warm, but... You're like an eagle. I guess it's, it's warm egg. enough now. Now that it's hot. <laughs> Your shot at $1,000 now. Text the keyword LUCK to 200-200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's LUCK to 200-200. Winners are notified by phone, which means uh, if you get an, uh, a phone call in the next several minutes, you might want to answer it, even if it's from a number you don't recognize. If you don't answer when you're the winner, then you are technically not the winner. They'll move on to somebody who will. We're giving away $1,000 an hour from 5 in the morning with Jonesy and Wake Up Call all the way through the first hour of the Conway Show at 7 o'clock at night. 
One of the results of the opioid crisis is that grandparents are raising their grandchildren more than ever before. These families are known as grand families. In Florida alone, nearly 160,000 grandparents are responsible for their grandchildren. According to Generations United here in the U.S., for every one child in foster care, there are 20 children being raised by relatives. This is a terrifying thing. I mean, this isn't just because of the opioid crisis. It's because people get in trouble with the law. They don't want their kids put into the foster system for whatever reason. They don't want uh, or or they do have family members that are willing to open their home and take in these kids. It's that the opioid crisis is making it worse because in a lot of the cases, the people who have to give up their kids – are being instructed to do so by the courts. Very few times is this a voluntary thing. Or it's one of those situations where it's an arrangement that no one really wants to acknowledge, but Jimmy and Tammy are the ones who are uh, off buying heroin or Xanax or whatever, ODing in their car, and it's grandma and grandpa who are watching the kids the majority of the time without any sort of formal arrangement. And remember, it wasn't that long ago. I want to say it was within the last six months. There was a string of videos that started showing up of parents completely ODing in yeah. their cars with the kids in the back seat. Yep. And it was just a disturbing trend. And this is, I think, an example of that. This is an offshoot of that. I think that was a law enforcement thing, getting the videos out so people know what's what's happening. Um, there was an article that Michelle dug up from WEAR-TV where it talked to uh, – a couple that uh, they're 59 years old and their parents now again for a second time because they had to take on uh, the grandkids. But there was another family that was profiled as part of NHPR's Crossroads series. And they talked to Edie Anderson and they're talking to her in the kitchen when her great granddaughter bursts into the room. She's 10 years old. There are grandparents raising their great-grandchildren in some cases. And there's no way to fix this. I mean, I mean, fixing it, this is probably the best fix that there can be, you know, that you've got someone who's willing to raise these kids. But imagine what is supposed to be sort of the, uh, I don't know, late summer, early autumn of your life. When it's supposed to be you and everything gets put on hold because your kids are uh, are addicted to something, and the other part of it is this isn't a this isn't a race thing or a class thing. This this crosses all boundaries when it comes to the demographics of who it is that's being sucked into this and, opioid crisis. And I think that's why it's making news so much because this happens all the time in poor communities, right? Nobody ever writes articles about it. Grandparents raise their grandkids all the time. But because it seems like this opioid addiction crisis does not discriminate and is hitting people on all levels of the uh, economic spectrum, there are families that this this isn't done, that it is now done. And the unfortunate thing is that the foster systems throughout this throughout the country are so overtaxed uh, with kids. The good news is in terms of the uh, statistics that show that kids who are raised by family members or placed with family members have a much better future ahead of them, just in general. The numbers show that that's the case. So I suppose that we can be very thankful that there are plenty of people who are willing to take these kids in, but 
it still doesn't make the whole situation much easier. What are you going to be uh, known as when you're a grandparent? What's going to be your name? Grandpa or Pop Pop? I have, n- I don't know. Pop Pop sounds nice. I like Pop Pop. You look like a Pop Pop. Great. <laughs> I can't respond to that. What am I going to say? You look like a grandma? No, I, well, I'm not going to be a grandma. What are you going to be? Uh, I just, I, this is Great it. Auntie Shannon? This is all you get. Yeah, great auntie. Wow. Yeah, I guess so. You could be a great aunt. Yeah, that's what I happen. mean, you are one now. You're great. Oh, but thanks, I mean, Pop, a little Pop. G. No, my wife says she wants to be na- She wants to be called Lolly. See, that's perfect. Why? Lolly and Pop Pop. Lolly Pop. Lolly and Pop Pop. I don't even remember where she got that, but I, I literally wrote it as a reminder to myself. Or just pop, lolly yeah, and pop. that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I don't like the pop pop, though. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I want pop. Lolly See, pop. it's written as a reminder in my phone. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> you have to write that down, huh? What? Yes, I did. The transformation has begun. <laughs> he writes everything down. <laughs> Interesting. Easy. Easy. Coming back. Do you uh, have a list like that on your phone for um, for like other people? He writes yes. down our Christmas present ideas throughout the year. In perfectly capitalized letters. Interesting. How many files do you have? You don't need to know everything. Gary Channel will continue Swamp Watch right after this. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. Swamp Watch. Briefly, before we talk about the Americans returning from North Korea, we talked a little bit about Rex Tillerson's name being lost in this victory lap. And Dennis Rodman, you brought up Dennis Rodman. He was asked about credit, if he deserves credit. And he said, I don't want to take all the credit. I don't want to sit there and say, I did this, I did that. That's not my intention. My intention was to go over and be a sports ambassador to North Korea. So people understand how the people are in North Korea. I think that has resonated to this whole point now. He says, and Donald Trump, I don't ask Donald Trump for anything. I like Donald Trump. He's a good friend. And I've always asked him to talk to me because the people of North Korea and the government over there asked me to talk to Donald Trump about what they want and how we could solve things. Interesting. So uh, who gets who gets the uh, the Nobel Peace Prize in all of this? I think uh, Dennis Rodman gets a piece of it. <laughs> he at least gets a nomination. How's that? Well, as we have seen, the three Americans who were detained by North Korea uh, arrived back in the United States very early in the morning. The president, uh, the first lady, the vice president were all there at Joint Base Andrews to welcome them back. And uh, Andy Field was there as well. That must have been a late night for you. Yeah, it was it reminded me of the college days. You pull an all nighter and then you just go back to work and do it all over again. Uh it was it was really quite a scene. Uh I don't think the president has ever greeted anyone at Andrews Air Base, which is now called Joint Base Andrews. Uh but he helicoptered over from the White House. The vice president came in a separate helicopter. The Secretary of State flew in his own plane. The three released uh, Americans from North Korea came in a medical plane just following him. All of this was coordinated, so they all converged on Andrews at about 2.30 in the morning. The president walked up the steps to greet them, went into the plane with Melania Trump while Vice President Pence and his wife waited at the bottom of the steps. 
then they came out, and it was really an extraordinary moment. Uh, the president smiling as big as I've seen him smile in a long time. Uh, the three detainees, now freed, got out smiling, waved victory signs, and then came down and met the press. What's, uh, what's the next step for these three men? Well, they were, taking, uh, they were taken directly to Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, where they're being evaluated. They'll be debriefed, try to get as much intelligence information they can about North Korea, which will help the CIA in, in terms and, and, and the U.S. military in dealing with North Korea, but also help the president in his upcoming meeting in June with Kim Jong-un to find out, you know, what, if anything, they can tell him that he might be able to use his leverage. So, uh, but they didn't immediately see their families, and we were told by the State Department that that is typically the case, that they really need to decompress a little bit before they uh, are even in any shape to see their families. Andy, what particulars do we know about this June 12th meeting, and uh, will we be hearing more particulars, or is this going to be kind of kept in secret about how this is going to go down? Well, they're going to have to tell us something because we have to go cover it. Uh, there has to, there's a lot of logistics involved, and, of course, the government of Singapore is involved in this here. But we know it's uh, the beginning of June. The president's going to fly there. Originally, President Trump thought that the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea would be a good place to do it. Uh, the stumbling block there is that it is a very remote area. We're not a whole lot of Holiday Inns and Hilton's and Sheridan's there to put up the massive amount of people to support this. So they decided that was not such a good idea. But uh, the president was absolutely glowing in his review of Kim Jong-un for releasing these folks, for saying that he's been very cooperative. Uh, a 180-degree turn from just a few months ago when he was calling him a little rocket man. Uh, the Kim Jong-il was calling the president a dotard. Uh, they were threatening nuclear annihilation on both sides. And now, Suddenly, things have changed. Uh, I actually tried to get a question to the president last night. He, I know he heard me because he looked at me, but he ignored me. <laughs> and one of, one of the questions I wanted to ask him, I said, well, why aren't you trying this with Iran? Uh, I hope that question gets asked to him, because if he can do it with North Korea, maybe he can do it with Iran. Yeah, well, I guess it's to be seen, potentially. Yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, this was certainly a, a huge boost for the president, who is just got nothing but a barrage of bad news day after day with the Russian investigation and his own personal attorney and investigations. So uh, he was very happy, but he did kind of show his entire hand of cards last night at the very end of it, where he smiled at, at what looked like about 200 people that were gathered there from world media organizations and said, I bet you've never had better ratings at three in the morning. Yeah. Uh, which kind of indicates why the president was doing this in the first place. Andy, thank you very much. Thank you. Andy Field there, the latest. Uh, he was there at Joint Base Andrews when those detainees came in. Uh, one of the headlines from uh, from D.C. today is also that the Trump administration is trying to roll back some uh, decades-old child labor laws. Um, i got to be honest with you. This doesn't bother me at all. This We're not hearkening back to... 12-year-olds working 14-hour days in factories. That's not at all what they're talking about. No, there are these, within recent years, new rules for 16-year-olds. Uh, I had to deal with this. I mean, this is the, I had to deal with state-specific child labor laws, but when my son wanted to work at a tire shop, like I had to, I, first of all, you I went to through, do a lot. 
I had to go through and get a permit from the uh, from the school district that he was allowed to work. Period. I mean, every that was the everybody's done that, but they were not going to allow him to work because he was going to be working in a tire shop, and that there were certain hydraulic equipment that they felt it was unnecessary. Uh, it was illegal for my son to work around, which is ridiculous. I can understand something like, and when I, by the way, I looked it up in the child in the California state code. It does say that children under the age of eighteen cannot work in brothels and uh, and gold mines. Okay, so and there's a whole list of other things, including like you know nuclear hazardous materials, uh, factories and waste dumps and things like that. It's kind of insinuating that brothels are almost like state sanctioned or something. Well, they were back then. That's the thing is they don't even have it updated to the point where you would that would make any sense. <laughs> but what they're talking about is right now a, a 16 or 17 year old. This is under federal guidelines. A 16 or 17 year old um, apprentice or a high school student in a vocational program can get limited exemptions to perform work in some hazardous occupations. Things like chainsaws, um, power driven machines that for most uh, for for most states would be considered too dangerous for anybody under the age of 18 to operate. I find that it's a, one of those things that's very difficult for me to understand. You're going to allow a kid to operate a motor vehicle at 3,000 pounds flying down the freeway at 75 miles an hour, but you're not going to teach him how to properly use a chainsaw. I didn't make any sense to me. So I, I, I completely understand why... They want to get this. Uh, they want to ease some of these child labor restrictions. Um, and again, it's not a return to the days when you had uh, Oliver Twist in a in a gruel factory, fourteen hours a day, making porridge. Coming up next, a day after the U.S. withdraws from the Iran nuclear deal, we are seeing a significant escalation in regional hostilities between Iran. And Israel there in Syria, we are going to go live to Jerusalem coming up next to get all the latest. Gary and Shannon will continue. Gary and Shannon, it's Thursday, it's May 10th. We're in the middle of Swamp Watch, talking about what's going on in Washington, D.C., and you can bet there are plenty of people in the nation's capital watching what's been going on in Israel and in Syria right now. The White House has condemned Iran's provocative rocket attacks from Syria against Israeli citizens, as the statement said. Jordana Miller is joining us live from Jerusalem with the latest on uh, what has become uh, an Israeli missile attack on some sites in Syria. First of all, what were they aiming for in Syria? Well, the Israeli army says that they were aiming at Iranian uh, military positions in Syria. Uh, They hit about 50 of them. They included military compounds, uh, intelligence gathering sites, weapon depots, uh, communication centers. Uh, And basically, the Israeli defense minister said that that Israel had hit nearly all of uh, Iran's infrastructure in Syria, uh, setting back uh, whatever they were developing for a number of months. So what is uh, Israel saying about this? Well, uh, 
Prime Minister Netanyahu just came out of a security uh, cabinet, uh, an emergency meeting that he convened, and he put out a very uh, strongly worded uh, statement both towards Iran and Syria. Uh, he said that Iran had crossed a red line with the missile attack and that uh, it was a, a failed mission in any case, since none of the missiles hit Israel. A 16 fell in Syria, and, and Israel shot down the other four. Um, but he said that the IDF uh, carried out an appropriate response and that the message uh, to the to Iran was that, you know, if you try to harm us, we're going to hit you back uh, even harder. And to Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, uh, Netanyahu named him and said, uh, you know, essentially, if you are aiding and abetting the Iranians, then you, are, you will also be a target, because Israel also took out today five Syrian anti-aircraft uh, batteries that were firing on those Israeli fighter jets. What sort of uh, role has Iran played in the current conflict in Syria? Well, Iran has, um, you know, thousands of its own Revolutionary Guard uh, fighters there helping to uh, prop up uh, President Bashar al-Assad. Iran has also trained thousands of other Shiite uh, fighters from other countries. Uh, and now Iran is, among, uh, among its goals, it is trying to set up uh, military, naval, and air bases uh, in southern Syria. And that is uh, why Israel is taking such a strong stance now before uh, they really get a foothold in that area, because it will be just another front, really, against Israel. Uh, and the prime minister argues, really, the whole world should be worried about this, because if, you know, Iran gets naval bases and starts to dock submarines uh, there, you know, uh, that is a threat not only to the region, but uh, to the West as well. Is there any evidence that Israel is mounting uh, a ground offensive or getting ready to? There is no evidence uh, of that right now. Um, but one of the interesting things that has come up in just the last 24 hours, which is a real shift, is that for the first time, the prime minister and others are really talking about how this is going to be a long-term uh, campaign in Syria, that Israel is not just these aren't just one-offs, um, but that the challenge of getting Iran, you know, out of that region or, or curbing and containing it substantially is going to be a challenge for Israel over the next number of years, really. Any correlation between the announcement yesterday, yesterday about the Iran nuclear deal on the heels of Netanyahu's big press conference about Iran continuing to uh, get the pieces together to build nuclear weapons? I mean, it's first, it seems that Netanyahu's presentation of that evidence that the Mossad was, you know, almost miraculously able to, to get out of Tehran 100,000 original documents, it seems to have had some influence on the White House. The president mentioned it in his own remarks, um, you know, as proof that the Iranians had lied to the world about their covert nuclear uh, program. But it's also interesting that the timing of the pullout from uh, Amer from the president's pullout of from the Iran nuclear deal, and these strikes were just separated by about a day. And um, you know, Iran had been waiting to kind of take revenge for strikes that it accused Israel of carrying out over the last several weeks that left uh, you know some of its uh, Revolutionary Guard soldiers killed. And you know, the minute 
the Americans pulled out of the deal, Iran had nothing to lose. And, you know, within 24 hours, they were lobbing missiles over to Israel. So I think those two events are also connected. Yeah. All right, Jordana, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Jordana Miller there, the uh, latest live in Jerusalem with the uh, the back and forth between Israel and the Iranian troops and bases that are in Syria right now. Uh, so, just to kind of do one quick yeah, gossipy thing about, about Washington, D.C., since we're in the middle of Swamp Watch. Yeah. Is it about the chaplain? Nope. Good. It's about uh, Donald Trump Jr. Oh, I know. I heard about this. Yeah, so we know that he had a rocky time with his wife, right? Uh, and they're in the middle of their divorce. Yeah, and he can't touch her marinara money. Right. She's she's She'll be fine. I know you're worried, but she'll be fine. I mean, the kids are going to be paid for. That's not the right word, but they'll be, they won't be want for money. That's for sure. I mean, despite how horrible the divorce is going to be. Multiple sources are now saying that uh, Don Jr. has found uh, romance in the arms of Kimberly Guilfoyle, the woman who would at one point have been the next first lady of the great state of California. Because she was married to Gavin Newsom. Was she time. married to him when he had sex with the best friend's wife? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what broke mm-hmm. up that marriage. Mm-hmm. I thought she was dating the mooch. She was dating the mooch. She has bad taste. Terrible taste. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my takeaway. She went from Gavin Newsom. There were so many mixed in there uh, in the middle that I'm, I'm not sure if she ever got married again uh, after Newsom. Yeah, she married uh, a guy named Eric Valenci, CEO of Valenci Design. Uh, divorced him, hung out with the mooch too often, and uh, has now moved on to Don Jr. So, um, And she is, I think, nine years, almost ten years his senior. But, hey, that's just a little rumor thing. That's what I heard. When we come back, possible charges are going to be announced today, in, more charges in the Golden State Killer case. Our own Chris and Carlos is going to join us. We're going to have an update on that next on Gary and Shannon. Gary and Shannon. Uh, Thursday, it's May 10th. Uh, Mark Saltzman coming up in a few minutes. We're going to be doing some tech talk stuff. He's got a surprise for us, he says. So uh, it should be interesting. He's going to try to trick us with something. That's all I know about it. a surprise from a Canadian. It could be anything. (laughs) He's like, that maple syrup has high fructose corn syrup in it. Um, Also, we're going to get into strange science at the uh, bottom of this hour, including a weapon that I'm not sure is considered a weapon, like a bad kind of thing. It's supposed to render people completely incapacitated through extreme pleasure. It's a weird, it's a thing. It's a weird thing. Well, we, uh, go ahead. I was going to say on some nightmare fuel where scientists actually train spiders to jump on command. Oh, no, I can't have that. (laughs) Yep. Well, we know now that the Golden State Killer D'Angelo, Joseph D'Angelo, has been formally charged with eight murders, uh, Orange County, Ventura County, Sacramento County, some in each of those but yet we're hearing some news maybe coming out of Santa Barbara County. Yes, and our friend Chris Carlo happens to be there right now. What's up, Chris? Well, yeah, I just happened to be in Santa Barbara County, and we find out that the DA up here is going to have an announcement coming forth at 2.30, and that announcement pertains specifically to whatever charges may or may not be filed. And uh, we'll find out if those uh, if those four other um 
charges will come down and then you move on to the decision as to where this trial is going to be held. And uh, we saw Tony Rakakis, of course, the district attorney out of Orange County, just uh, I think it was yesterday, come out and talk extensively about, you know, perhaps having one kind of bigger master trial with the district attorneys having staff uh, come down and basically argue the thing together um, instead of kind of bouncing around from county to county to county. So that's uh, one of the possibilities. And perhaps we'll hear a little bit more detail coming from Santa Barbara County's perspective and the uh, district attorney up here, Joyce Dudley, uh, kind of, I think, filling in the last gap in the broader legal attack against Joseph D'Angelo. What murders are we talking about in Santa Barbara County? So there were two in Goleta. One was in, uh, or two instances. Uh, one was in 1979, um, and it was uh, Dr. Robert Offerman and Alexandria Manning. And then uh, D'Angelo, it's believed, he, he left, went down south a little bit. Uh, that's when he committed some murders down in, uh, in Ventura in Orange County, and then came back up to Goleta. And uh, it was um, Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez after that. So that's the uh those are the two cases that they're looking at and um you know those have been talked about a lot because there was some resistance to the idea initially that those murders were linked to what had happened in orange county to what had happened in sacramento when i say you know initially we're talking now a couple decades ago where you had law enforcement in santa barbara county thinking that they they actually interviewed and and detained other people for these crimes they they thought they had these things solved uh, and it wasn't until there was you know, DNA evidence kind of linking everything back together that they realized uh, we're, we're looking at the same guy here. They had the similar M.O., but nothing linking them until they had the, uh, the DNA evidence. How much of this is uh, Santa Barbara trying to get its hat in the ring? I mean, it's not necessary if we've got eight other murder charges against this guy. Um, what do they stand to gain by, by pressing charges against him? Well, you know, stand again is the notoriety, and as much as this is a criminal affair, it's a little bit of a political affair too. Um, and, we saw yeah, that I'm up not, in Sacramento with the DA well, who's facing reelection. Well, not not just in in uh, Sacramento, but Orange County. There's a pretty big uh, DA election that's coming up as well. Right. Um, I'm not as attuned to the politics of Santa Barbara County, so I can't speak uh, to that. But there's certainly an element of, hey, like I'm in an elected position and this is one of the biggest cases that's going to come down my pike. I want a piece of it. Absolutely. I think there's also um, there's a sense of catharsis as well for the community to be able to be a part of this uh, of this prosecution and to say that, you know, these murders that happened in our backyard that happened next door to us. Now we know who did it and we have a piece of that justice in our pocket. Uh, there's also the redundancy, the idea that, hey, maybe just maybe he's able to evade, you know, eight other charges. But, hey, we can get him on these last four. I mean, there are a lot of different reasons as to as to why charges would be filed here as well that go beyond you know just the the political yeah and and i get that i mean all the charges should be filed in each county and everybody wants this feather in their cap if they are like you said an elected official i think it's got to stay in sacramento i mean they've got the body and they've got the the probably the highest number of charges they can connect this guy to but i do like that move by tony rakakis I do like that move of him pointing out uh, the Rodney Alcala trial, that it was consolidated in Orange County for the murders of four women in Orange County and one um, or uh, four in L.A. County and one in Orange County. Um, But it gets more, I think, complicated when you're dealing with crimes that were committed across 10 counties in California. 
Um, and and I, that would be a hard one to bring down to Orange County, I would think. Yeah, one of the issues they're still trying to sort out as well is the statute of limitations. Because, and, you know, one of the interesting things in covering this, because I've been flying back and forth to Sacramento, when I'm in Sacramento, um, and, you know, whether I'm talking to radio affiliates up there or reading the Sacramento Bee, they don't call them the Golden State Killer. They call them the East Area Rapist. And, I mean, it's it's rare that you see Golden State Killer uh, at the banner headliner in the first paragraph of the Sac Bee. And um, I just find it remarkable that this guy has a completely different reputation in a different part of the state than what we know him for in Southern California. Yeah, I mean, you're right, because it was so unique to Sacramento with the, you know, 40 or so rapes in a couple of years. um, And it was known as the East Area Rapist. The other thing is that was kind of a Michelle McNamara title that she gave him, the Golden State Killer. And she's obviously connected much more to Los Angeles um, than she is up there. But it is interesting that they are kind of staking their claim to him by going and, and referring to him as his initial moniker uh, up it, there. Yeah. It's fascinating. And I think, again, that's part of the the healing process as well from something like this, where you get a chance to say our community was so vigorously affected. We're going to own whatever we call them. We're going to own whatever it is that we prosecute them for. And uh, if if it's a different moniker than what they're using down south, then so be it. Now, the challenge is whether or not those rapes are still covered by statute of limitations. And that's what they're figuring out right now. And I think that'll weigh heavily in terms of where they go. Uh, The district attorney in Sacramento County has been in I think I've told you guys this before. She's been pretty upfront about being okay to move it somewhere else if all the other DAs are like, yeah, between Ventura, between Santa Barbara, between Orange County and Sacramento County. If we feel like we have the best shot for whatever in, say, Ventura or Orange County, she says she's cool with that. Awesome. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. We appreciate it. Of course, guys. Chris and Carlo, they're live in Santa Barbara County. The DA, Joyce Dudley, again, going to have a news conference a little more than an hour from now to announce something in the Golden State Killer case, and we uh, making the assumption probably that there will be at least some murder charges filed against him in Santa Barbara County. We'll come back. Mark Saltzman, our tech guy, is going to join us. We're going to talk about some stuff he has a surprise for us, he says. Plus $1,000. $1,000. How's That's that a great for idea. a surprise? That's a great surprise. That's a great story. Gary and Shannon. It's Monica. <laughs> Hi. Did you forget? No, I don't oh. know why you're whispering. Oh, because I didn't yeah. know if she, you just stopped. <laughs> hey, guys. There it goes again. She stopped. <laughs> Did you see it? Everybody saw it. Analysis. <laughs> yeah. Gary and Shannon, <laughs> KFI AM 640. Well, looky here. We've got $1,000 for you. Your shot at $1,000 now. Text the keyword bank to 200-200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's bank to 200-200. And remember, answer that phone because it's going to be a number you don't recognize. And if it's a telemarketer, just hang up. But don't miss your chance at $1,000. Hey, you know what time it is? Time for Tech Talk. The machines are getting smarter. This is Tech Talk. Brought to you by Skynet. Well, on Thursdays at this time, we get to talk to our friend, Mark Saltzman. You see his stuff on USA Today and a bunch of other places. And you can follow him on Twitter at Mark with a C underscore Saltzman. Talking all things tech. Hey, Mark. 
Hey, game show Gary. How are you? <laughs> Fine. Thank you. Uh, hey, that I was know great. you've been eager to get to this. You wanted to uh, to lead us in today with, uh, with a portion of a, a sound clip. Yeah, I think, uh, Shannon, you and Gary are going to love this. So let's start off with the – let's play the clip. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a conversation with a restaurant, and then I'll tell you what the, the surprise is at the end of it. So let's roll it. Good evening. Hello? Hello. Hi. Um, I'd like to reserve a table for Friday the 3rd. Okay, hold on one moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hold on one second. Mm-hmm. So Friday, November 3rd, how many people? For two people. Two people? Yeah. What time? At 5 p.m. Okay. And your name? The first name is Daniel. That's D-A-N-I-E-L. Okay. You're all set. Huh. Okay. I think I know what it is. Okay. You tell us. Tell me, Gary. She's a robot. The other way around. The caller isn't real. What? The guy. So this is Google's new, they unveiled this week uh, their, their duplex technology. It's based on Google Assistant, their artificial intelligence and natural speech uh, synthesis that we all have, you know, in a Google Home or, or in our phones. This is the next gen that they unveiled this week at Google I.O. conference. So we're not going to have to talk to anybody ever know, right? again. <laughs> so that, that's going to be the idea. Gary or Shannon, you're going to want to book a restaurant reservation or something. So you have you instruct your Google bot to call. And you heard ums and ahs and natural human pauses, but by this guy calling, Daniel, who even spelled out his name, he's not real. That is artificial intelligence. Wow. Creepy or what? That is well, super creepy. Is it, is it designed to sound like me? Well, no, I don't think so yet. I think they, they have a generic male voice, but you bet that, that if that's not in the cards to start, Well, it's it just will like be. having an assistant, you know, if yeah. you had an mm-hmm. assistant call and book me a res, that's right. it, it's such and such. But you bet there will be an option where you go through the, you know, the alphabet, a bunch of words, and then it's going to listen to your voice and, and analyze it and then create a bot based on you if you like. But this was, you know, Google calls this an experiment. It was a demo that they unveiled on stage this week. It was developed by engineers and designers in uh, Mountain View, California, New York, and Tel Aviv. And the AI just is crazy. So obviously it's listening for keywords like what time or, you know, how many people and what's your name. So it's listening to certain words and then responding, but in a very natural human-like way. I also saw that they were working on auto-completion of whole emails, that Google's using that same, uh, or I guess an offshoot of that same AI to auto-complete entire emails instead of just words or sentences. That is right. It's called Smart Compose, and it's an autocomplete feature for Gmail. And that's going to be rolling out, by the way, in a couple of weeks to wow. every Gmail user. It's optional, but it will predict what you are trying to write or, or, or say, and it's going to fill it in for you. So the idea is twofold. It's going to save you time on repetitive writing um, once it, it understands the words you use often. And it also reduces the risk of making grammatical mistakes because it's going to autocomplete it for you. So it's kind of like the evolution of something in Gmail now called Smart Reply. It was it was introduced in 2017, in which Gmail would understand the context of your incoming email and suggest short phrases for you to reply with. But now it just takes it to the next level. So it's really it's opt in. Don't think that you, you're going to have to use this, but a lot of people I think will. So that was also unveiled at Google I/O this week. Mark, something that we've all run into, and I know you wrote a column about this in USA Today, is uh, the little message that says we don't have enough storage on our iPhone. 
Mm-hmm. So that happens a lot because, as you likely know, with iPhone, unlike most Android devices, you can't add more storage. Like what you buy is what you get, 64 gigs, 128, or even less. So um, what I what I did this week in, in USA Today was, of course, write how you should back up your important files first. And there's different ways to do that, to the cloud, uh, onto a little drive or a computer. Uh, but there's one other little hiccup here that a lot of iPhone users uh, listening right now to your program are going to nod in, in agreement. And that is that when you think you've deleted photos off your phone to make more room, they magically appear a day or two later, which then fills up your phone again. So this is a common concern, a common issue with many smartphone or iPhone rather users, and it's tied to the iCloud photo library. So the idea is that you you want to have your phone your photos backed up just in case you lose your phone or if it's stolen or, or damaged. But the idea is that you don't want, if you're trying to make more memory uh, more make more room, then you want to back it up onto another way, you know, another drive, and then uncheck the iPhone uh, iCloud photo library option tick that from your options and then it won't keep populating it back onto your phone so that's the little trick there so it's it's a catch-22 because you want it to back up your your stuff but you don't want it to keep repopulating so you just have to untick that in the in the options of iCloud I always felt like when I would delete a photo it actually went into a are you sure you want to delete this photo folder and then from there are you really really sure you want to delete this photo so to actually get the whole thing off your phone for good you had four or five different steps to go through. Mm-hmm. You're right, Gary. So when you delete photos or videos off your iPhone, it does go into what's called a recently deleted item, and it stays there for 30 days, and then they're gone forever. But what we're, what many people are finding is that even though uh, even a month later or so, they're they're coming back onto the phone because they're in the iCloud version. They're on like Apple's servers, and they're thinking, you know, there's somehow, and it depends on the phone that it's it, that you want it back on your device. So if you Google iPhone and then my last name Saltzman, you'll find out how to delete photos for good off your iPhone and, of course, ways to first back them up, which you want to do. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you once again. Thanks, guys. Uh, and you can check out Mark's podcast up on the website if you go to KFIAM640.com. Wait, is this really Mark or is it a robot? <laughs> well, if I can have my bot call in every week, no. Oh. I would take all the enjoy and take all the enjoyment out of it. We would like, miss you. Let, let your Aww. bot travel around the world and give all the speeches that you give. There you go. Even better. <laughs> even better. All right, Mark, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Coming back, we're going to do strange science stories that will make you have nightmares I guarantee it. Gary and Shannon will continue. Gary and Shannon. Well, there's a whole stack of stuff here. They're kind of sciencey stories. First one is a little technology mixed into it, and then we have a couple that are absolutely going to terrify you. I promise. This is what we call strange science. Strange science. It's like weird science, but strange. Uh, let me start with this one because I think this was just a follow-up kind of what Mark Saltzman was talking about in our tech segment there. Amazon has now shown you how much you can rely on Alexa to control everything in your home. They're doing a full Alexa-controlled home, partnering with the home builder Lennar to create Amazon Experience Centers 
homes that contain built-in Alexa-controlled appliances in hopes of persuading homeowners and homebuyers to embed their Amazon services throughout their house. Um, Apple has done something similar to this using their Siri Assistant, but uh, the idea that you would have this connected all over the place is, to me, a little terrifying. Can we talk about how Alexa was weaponized at my home over the weekend? That was the that was the most fun I've had with an inanimate object in a good in a good amount of time, an does inanimate but work? audible object. I, I I thought we were going to fry her. I mean, did, does, does yeah, she, still, she work? still works. I didn't think that she would be speaking to anyone on Saturday morning. Yeah. Like I just thought that like you'd start out going and, she's like, and she'd go, yeah, nope, yeah, no more, a little PTSD or something. Well, everybody was yelling at it like, hey, oh gosh, do you remember this song? Hey, uh, play. I don't give a f. Right. And then somebody volume would go, up. hey, yeah, volume up, volume up, volume up. <laughs> and everybody's going, volume down, volume down. What? Play something by uh, the Jonas Brothers. Yeah, I, I it, mean, was, just, it was a weapon. It was very funny. Anyway, Amazon, Apple, Google, they're all racing to get these smart assistants, not just into your home, but everything in your ecosystem running on them. I have, uh, I have lights that I can turn on and off uh, with an app on my phone. Mm-hmm. And you can connect that to my Alexa so that when I'm standing in one part of the house, I can say, Alexa, turn on the backyard lights. You know, all of this stuff uh, activates a feeling in me that I want to go live off the grid. I want to go live in a shack in the desert uh, with guns and uh, (laughs) no electricity. Uh, maybe so just you're... like candles or something and uh, Cheez-Its and wine or something. I don't want to be connected to anything because it freaks – it really does freak me out. Well, here I, – I, You know, I, I get freaked out when I go home and Alexa's like uh, blinking, you know, and I'm like – Waiting what, for what, the next she instruction. She knows something about me. She knows that my uh, book that I ordered was delivered. I don't want her to know that. Uh, it is a it is a worry because I, I'm not one that pushes technology away. I just want to make sure that I keep a safe distance from it at some points. There was a time not too long ago, I want to say this is a couple of weeks ago, where I was sitting at my dining room table and I was reading a book. And I wanted to turn my light on because it was starting to get dark outside. And I literally looked at my I'm from here to that wall. So that's what, 10 feet away from the light switch. And I thought to myself, self, I could open the app on my phone and turn that light on. Or I could get off my butt and go turn that light on. Well, and I felt that at that point, I thought, you know what? I don't, I don't, I need to be careful. I can't rely on technology too much. It's kind of a novelty, though, isn't it? Being able yeah, sure, to, to turn the light it's on. It's a neat from, trick it for, is. for parties. But it cannot go on. <laughs> you have to know when <laughs> to use it. You should get off your bottom. Well, you know, you never see Alexa on my 600 pound life. None of those people have Alexa. So. What so does that mean? It's good for my health? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. It might be good for your health. Like, they, I think they're – I'm surprised that those people don't have it because they're sitting around all day. That's but meanwhile, they got somebody up and down, up and down getting them food. Because you can order anything So what we need to do is send them Alexas. Yeah. The 600-pound life Sounds people. perfect. And then Dr. Now could come You can come order in. food from that. I know. Hello, how are you doing? Oh, my gosh, we're really fat now. Scientists uh, have trained spiders to jump on demand. I I'm, nope. I'm going to leave. Uh, hold on. I'm nope. leaving the room. No, don't leave yet. Because no, is... I am. I can't do it. I'll the... be back for the cockroach story. They... What? No, that's not any better. 
Researchers at the University of Manchester have used 3D CT scanning and high-speed, high-resolution cameras to record, monitor, and analyze a spider's movement and behavior. Um, They're trying to figure out why jumping spider anatomy evolved the way it did. (laughs) Because they're trying to develop what they call a class of agile micro-robots uh, that can use this technology, use nature's own technology to come up with a way to develop small jumping robots. Uh, they said that the, they trained the spider. They nickname, It's one spider they nicknamed Kim. Wow. To jump different heights and distances on a human-made platform in a lab environment. The team uh, recorded the jumps using high-speed cameras using high-resolution micro-CT scans, and then created a 3D model of little... Oh, gosh, it just got me finally. To create a 3D model of the legs and body structure in the detail. And it shows that this particular... Have you ever seen a slow-mo no. of them jumping? Yeah, no. I don't Super like... Super impressive. Uh, I don't like it. Oh, This I... particular species, the regal jumping spider, for those of you who are following in Latin, it's the Phidippus regius. This species of spider uses different jumping strategies depending on the challenge that it's presented with. For example, short range, close range distances. The spider, Kim, went after a faster, lower trajectory, which uses up more energy but minimizes the flight time, makes it more accurate and more effective when you're capturing prey. But if you're jumping a longer distance, Kim the spider uh, would jump in the most efficient way to reduce the amount of energy used. So they... Those spiders that are about to jump on your leg, everybody needs to look down right now, make sure there's no spiders down the floor. That spider that was about My to feet jump aren't even on touching your... the ground, I'm good. <laughs> and Shannon already left, so uh, when she comes back in. Mine's just because my chair is high. Uh, <laughs> I have longer torso than I do legs. We do have a, a cockroach story to tell you about as well before we get to the psychoelectronic weapon that apparently someone was trying to develop. You all right? Did you feel. Did you feel the spider on your leg? Are you no? Are you done? So basically, with the story? Shannon, the spider jumps. Uh, she's leaving. Wow, again. what a jerk! <laughs> Gary and Shannon will continue more strange science. Come with me now. Come with me now. Gary and Shannon. Finishing up our strange science stories, and who doesn't like a story, another story about an insect crawling into someone's ear and staying for a while? This story comes to us from Florida. Girl by the name of Katie Holly. She wakes up in the middle of the night. She feels a weird sensation in her ear. She says it was like somebody had placed a chip of ice in my left ear hole. A chip of ice? A cold sensation. Strange. A little bit of cold sensation. At first, her husband tried to remove the invader with tweezers. Okay, I'm going to pull the car over. <laughs> Don't stick tweezers in your ear. That's you, a bad idea. My uh, One of my sisters once had a BB in her ear. A little metal BB? Yeah. My other sister tried to get it out with a Q-tip. 
Dude, all the magnets. That's the simpler answer. Yeah. How many magnets you got that are going to fit inside your ear hole? You just have to get a really strong one and put it up to the side of her head. Oh, that's safe. Well, it'll pull the fillings out too, but you know, whatevs. Did she eventually go to the hospital? Oh, yeah. Okay. After it got to her brain. Four years later, she went to the hospital. They got it out. Little Homer Simpson situation there? No, four four hours later. Oh. Uh, That strategy with the tweezers, not successful. So they went to the ER, and that's where the doctor confirmed Katie's suspicion. A cockroach. Yeah, by the way, I don't, I mean. Yeah, I would never guess that a cockroach was in my ear. I'd be like, there's a bug, probably a spider or something. Get it out. And the doctor would be, because what else would get into your ear? Be careful, it jumps if you say the wrong word. I know. Blake, (laughs) train fired. Train it to jump out of your ear. I'm just saying. If the doctor is has that little you know tool where he's looking in your ear, he's like, oh, and he goes, oh, hey, what the? That's that's a cockroach. I'm pretty at that sh- point. You're gonna have to put me out. I'm pretty sure part of the whole Hippocratic Oath uh, chapter in the doctor's books says, don't say, oh, what the hell is that? You know what I mean? Doctors rarely. Say, oh, God. Doc, I give you the, uh, you're allowed to withhold vital information if I don't want to hear it. Uh, Yeah, don't throw up into the garbage can next to your patient, I think is one of the the portions, I'm sorry, one of the chapters of the Hippocratic Oath part of the doctor book. So, yeah, you know what I was getting at. Doctors are not allowed to act like they're surprised or horrified. Well, what did the doctor do when he finds a cockroach in the woman's ear? He first killed it with lidocaine. Okay. And then removed it using tweezers. I I guess, well, doctors are allowed to use tweezers. Oh, we weren't doing that. You're not. Okay. But in the days that followed, Katie had soreness in her ear and she had trouble hearing. What? And so she goes back to the doctor nine days later. And she learns that babies. She still had pieces, including the entire cockroach head, lodged in her ear. This already. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The doctor pulls the stuff out and Mm -hmm. and doesn't realize he doesn't have the entire cockroach in the tweezers. Yeah, you know what? That's a wouldn't you you go back? Cockroaches are burrowers, man. They'll get in there. Yeah, but wouldn't you go back in with your little ear looky device and say, "Oh my gosh, I left some stuff in there. I'll be right back." So itchy. Oh Oh my goodness. Okay, so you guys, um, this is a thing. This happens pretty commonly. There was a small study published uh, twelve years ago in the South African Medical Journal. And it found that during a two-year period, one hospital removed 23 insects from people's ears, including three beetles, eight flies, and 10 German cockroaches. Why they got to be German? I'm going to Google that. But doesn't like the average person swallow like eight certain things in their life? That's different because I think. That's, that's if you're, funny. let's say Blake goes out for a jog, right, and runs with his mouth open, because I've seen that, and that's not a pretty Oh, yeah, thing, I've but, taken it straight to the uvula before. Right, but you, the chances are you're going to swallow things that you don't even know, like little tiny mites and flies and whatever is flying around. You're going to get it right in your mouth, and you're going to not even notice that you did. You're going to swallow it or whatever. It's going to ha- I don't know. But you're never going to notice it. The thing about it crawling around in your ear is it when it starts a little tap dance thing on your eardrum and you can feel stop it, it? Stop it. Stop it. 
So it. Where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> That's different because you know what's going on. Okay, wait. I have a how-to of what you should do. By the by, stop it, Blake. I thought I fired you. Um, the thing about the German cockroaches, by the way, their heads are very small. So, oh, oh so, they so they're not. Yeah, I, I was assuming when you said German cockroach, it was like a a, a Panzer tank or something like that no. that was going to be stuck in my ear. No. Um, here is the takeaway from the show today: If you think you have an insect in your ear, <laughs> take this advice. Try keeping the ear with the insect in it pointing upward. Like in this? the yeah, like this. you got to tilt your head like this. In the hope that it crawls or flies out. Now, why would it? Or you could do this: you could pour olive oil or baby oil into your ear to suffocate the bug and potentially let it float out. You know, drown the bug in oil. So, in other words, even if if you, for example. Right now, said I think I got something in there. You would lay your head I sideways really on the counter right here. Don't like your hypothetical. And we would just pour oil into it until it tops off in your ear, I'd like and then wait for the body of of drowned creature to come out. Mm-hmm. I would like to be taken to an urgent care. Right now? No. Oh, <laughs> I thought I, we were doing that. I again. wouldn't want y'all pouring olive oil down my ear lobe. Yeah, I don't think that would happen. If my wife, for example, said to me, "I think I have a bug in my ear," the last thing I'm going to do is grab tweezers right. and say, "Honey, I got this. Right. I totally got this." Does not happen. Um, did they? Is there any other step? Just let the thing float out. Just there... health PSA though. That lady uh, then decided she was going to sleep with earplugs. That's a problem, too, because your ears drain when you're sleeping, and then you get wax buildup, and that's an issue as well. So maybe just don't overreact. It happened once. <laughs> Remember, it happened once. What's right. the chances of it happening what again? What are the chances of oh, get another don't bug? Overreact. Keep your house a little cleaner. We're good to go. Don't eat in bed. Don't eat in bed. Don't Thanks, Blake. Appreciate that. Don't forget, uh, we have our Get Prepared California American Red Cross fundraiser coming up. Our mixer is coming up on October 1st, which is a Monday night. Your opportunity to come hang out with the KFI crew. A whole question and answer session, which is, I would almost say, no limits, right? So far, there has not been a question. Nothing has been turned away. Not yet, at least. Uh, But this time, it's going to be at the beautiful OUE Sky Space, way up on top of the U.S. Bank Tower in downtown Los Angeles. Cocktails, appetizers, meet and greet, photographs, all that stuff, and unlimited sky slide rides if you want to hang your booty out over the the downtown L.A. Wouldn't be the first time. I'm just saying it's unlimited this time. Or take some plexiglass to the face, right? Depends on whether or not Monica goes or not. We'll see. Also... Uh, all of the proceeds go to the Red Cross's Get Prepared California project, and there are limited tickets available, so you got to get on there and buy them. Go to KFIAM640.com and use the keyword mixer. John and Ken coming up next. See you tomorrow. Stay dry, everybody. L-A-T-T-I-H-T-B-D. Look at the time. I have to be going. Gary and Shannon.